without objection, the chair is authorized to declare the committee in recess at any point. Today's hearing will examine the impact of the left-wing violence that is plaguing American communities and highlight how the Department of Homeland Security has the ability to do more to support state and local law enforcement to combat interstate threats such as left-wing violence. And I'll recognize uh, Ranking Member Ivey for the purposes of seeking unanimous consent. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Before I begin, I ask unanimous consent that Representative Goldman be permitted to sit with the committee and question today's witnesses. Without objection, so ordered. I now recognize myself for an opening statement. Good afternoon and welcome. Um, to this subcommittee hearing titled Mostly Peaceful, Countering Left-Wing Organized Violence. Today's hearing will examine the threat of organized left-wing violence and how the federal government and the Department of Homeland Security in particular can best help state and local law enforcement understand, anticipate, prepare for, and respond to these threats. Peaceful protests, robust debate, and civil dialogue are all essential the subcommittee just reaffirmed that principle in a hearing inquiring into the Department of Homeland Security's troubling and dangerous venture into censorship of Americans' online expression, which some astute observers have termed the censorship laundering enterprise. <clears throat> However, another threat to free expression is the contemporaneous phenomenon of more and more left-wing violence, organized violence, that appears designed to co-opt and suppress open debate as well. Time and again across the nation, Americans have seen both episodic <clears throat> and in some cases sustained violence against people, especially law enforcement and property damage, from so-called anti-fascist and anarchist groups. But it often seems that of this, the federal government takes little notice. I anticipate that my Democrat colleagues will reply with the official line from all the security agencies that right-wing extremism represents the most lethal terroristic threat to the homeland. Certainly, that issue has received no lack of official attention. But this is not about grading extremism. Violence in public discourse is always unacceptable, no matter the ideology behind it. But mention left-wing violence and the prevarications begin. Some will claim that it's not that big a deal or that Antifa is a myth. And we all remember state-aligned media's fervent effort to label fiery, violent rioting as, quote, mostly peaceful. Well, it's time that Congress take a closer look at what mostly peaceful looks like. Here's one of our witnesses, former collegiate swimmer, who found herself on the wrong end of a mob when she appeared at San Francisco State University last month to speak her mind about the state of women's sports. She was barricaded in a room for her own personal protection for several hours before finally being able to leave. Take a look at the mob Riley Gaines encounters. <clears throat> <laughs> Our colleges and universities, once the symbol of free and open debate in our country, are increasingly scenes of violent intimidation by left-wing extremists to silence those with whom they disagree. In another recent incident, left-wing agitators at Stanford Law School 
disrupted a student-organized lecture from a judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Protesters shouted him down and refused to let him deliver his speech. And then the university DEI administrator who appeared didn't act to establish order and contain the heckling. Instead, she took the podium to deliver prepared remarks praising the, the disruptive intimidation and suggesting that Stanford rethink its commitment to free speech. The judge eventually had to be escorted out by federal marshals. But it's not just colleges and universities. In 2020, the American people watched as riots raged, causing an estimated $2 billion in damage and chaos across our country. Minneapolis, Kenosha, other such places. We saw courthouses and police facilities in Portland and Seattle. And even the very notion of government control targeted with months of sustained violence. Any notion that this was a phenomenon limited to a specific time or region gave way more recently to the specter of left-wing activists carrying out a sustained violent campaign against a public safety training center under development in Atlanta. The agitators, several of whom were arrested on terrorism charges, attacked law enforcement with rocks, bricks, Molotov cocktails, and commercial-grade fireworks. This is not what peaceful protest looks like. <clears throat> it's past time to recognize that these are not random or spontaneous outbursts of violence. Far from it. Self-styled anti-fascist and anarchist groups often exploit bona fide causes deliberately to organize and deploy street violence for political ends. They use sophisticated tactics to assault law enforcement officers, destroy property, and spread fear and disorder. They travel across the country to targeted locations to unleash their destructive rage. For example, 21 of the 23 people arrested in the Atlanta attack came from outside the state of Georgia. Just two were locals, including a lawyer employed by the Southern Poverty Law Center. These groups are sophisticated. They are well-trained and financed. They have extensive logistical support, and they are extremely clever in masking their activities. According to the FBI, groups like Antifa avoid traditional hierarchies and leadership structures. They prefer small-cell activities tailored to specific events. Some use the opaque nature of groups like Antifa to excuse or to claim that Antifa is, quote, a false issue, unquote, or a myth. But the law enforcement personnel and journalists on the ground, including our witnesses, know that the threat is real. And the opaque and diffuse nature of groups like Antifa mean that local law enforcement often lack the insights they need to prepare for and counter destructive activities. Unfortunately, it is not clear that the Department of Homeland Security is always engaging in the level of information sharing and coordination sufficient to address this threat. Part of the department's mission, after all, is to share timely and actionable information to enable state and local partners to keep their communities safe. The question is, does the department sufficiently share analyses and collect lessons learned from prior incidents of organized left-wing violence with state and local partners. After all, you cannot address a threat you decline to define or acknowledge. 
So today's hearing is not about whether left or right-wing extremism is worse. They are different problems requiring different strategies, and it is well past time we recognize organized left-wing violence for the threat that it is. Earlier today, two other subcommittees on the Homeland Security Committee held a hearing about federal efforts to support state and local law enforcement. As we celebrate National Police Week, we on the committee are reminded of the importance of these federal and local partnerships. This afternoon, we're fortunate to have Scott Erickson, a former police officer, former high-ranking Homeland Security official, share with us his testimony on the tools and information local law enforcement needs from the federal government to help secure our communities. Americans like our witness today, Riley Gaines, who has the right to speak her mind, and Julio Rosas, who has the right to report the news, deserve no less than to exercise their constitutional rights without constant fear of being violently attacked for doing so. I now recognize the ranking member, the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Ivey, for his opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the very violent aspects of right-wing violence, um, right-wing extremism that we have here in the United States. Um, not in a Me Tooism, One Upism, but because it's significantly greater threat than uh, the Antifa scenario that was just discussed. Can we get my? <laughs> I want to present two things to the to the committee. Um, this, this chart, um, and we'll come back to it. I want to give the witnesses a chance to discuss it. But the, um, I believe it's the blue, shows left wing extremism, and this is obviously a hundred percent. These are killings and incidents, um, and, and this is from twenty thirteen to twenty twenty two. As you can see, with respect to the incidents, uh, the red part of the donut is um, right-wing extremism, and we'll talk about what that means later. But it's almost, from an incident standpoint, the entire circle. Then with respect to the killings from 2013 to 2022, uh, three-quarters of it is right-wing extremism. Um, So that's not to say that there's no left-wing extremism issue uh, or that there aren't solutions that we should take or steps that we should take to address them. Um, But it is to say that risk of death to citizens here in the United States, right-wing extremism is a greater problem. Put those down. I wanted to back up and, and talk about sort of the roots of this, and I'll come to these issues with the left in a, in a moment, but of course the largest act of homegrown terrorism is the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, I think we lost 168 civilian bombing. That was Timothy McVeigh, acting in conjunction with two others, I think Terry Nichols, I forget the the name of the third gentleman. Um, But um, he decided that he was upset about the Waco uh, issue. And then two two years later to the day, uh, he put a bomb inside a truck that he designed from fertilizer and drove it into the Oklahoma City Federal Office Building. I think it was the second floor of that building had uh, a kindergarten and daycare in the bottom. So many of the deaths were to children. Uh, I, I saw some of the clips of people who were survivors of that bombing. I think some worked for the IRS, some were just federal people who worked uh, trying to be public servants and help their community. Uh, and they were um, 
really unconnected, uninvolved, had no relationship with the Waco scenario at all. Uh, but it certainly set a, a gigantic tone because we've had a lot of right-wing extremism that's tried to imitate McVeigh or followed along the ide ideological tracks that he laid out. Uh, in fact, uh, I believe it was Mr. Nichols was connected to the uh, Michigan militia, uh, which was also connected to um, the same group that tried to kidnap uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And we, we've had some discussions about that at previous hearings, but um, I think it's clear that that was an effort to kidnap her and I think uh, apparently to assassinate her. And that was based on uh, their, 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 their views with respect to uh, COVID, feeling that she'd gone too far in imposing COVID restrictions. Um, and, and so I think we have to be sure that we've, we, we sort of separate out um, that sort of violence, those sorts of threats uh, from what we've got witnesses who we'll talk about today. Um, I, you know, I'm particularly wanted to mention this. I think Carrie Watkins, who is the director of the Oklahoma City Museum, that is a memorial to the bombing site, uh, says that from that sacred ground, we have to work to find common ground. Otherwise, we cannot begin to address these problems. I, I think that the common ground has to be data-driven, that there has to be a focus on uh, the significant causes of, of violence and right-wing extremism. And I think from a homeland security standpoint, it's important for us to focus on what the roots of that are so we can try and uh, disrupt that. We had a hearing here a little while ago about uh, disinformation, misinformation, malinformation. I'll just say false information just to summarize it quickly. But it's clear that a lot of the young men who get involved, and there's almost always young men, uh, in, in committing these kinds of acts, uh, buy into various types of disinformation and misinformation. I want to chat about a couple of them real quick. Um, some of you may recall the, um, the Atlanta attacker from March 2021. Um, he fatally shot eight people at different spa locations. I think six of them were Asian women. Uh, and he had to drive to, to, to find the six to kill. He had to drive, I think it was eight miles, to get to, to the three different massage parlors. Uh, and he said, I'm going to kill eight, all Asians, was the quote from that state, from that event. Um, with respect to, I'll just do a couple of these instead of going through all of them because we don't have time, but El Paso, August 2019, the alleged attacker killed 23 people and injured numerous others uh, using a recently purchased semi-automatic rifle. Another issue we need to talk about, um, uh, you know, the ability for these guys to buy usually AR-15s and go out and commit these mass attacks, even if they shouldn't be able to get them, even if they're under the age of 21. Is another issue that I think we need to address in addition to, rep, rep, you know, recognizing mental health issues. Um, this guy expressed support for the attack on mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand. Some of you may recall that that was another ideologically driven attack um, that spawned several others here in the United States. Um, this guy said the response was to the, quote, Hispanic invasion of Texas, close quote. The manifesto encouraged others to conduct similar attacks and said the alleged attacker was a, quote, not white nationalist, close quotes, trying to discourage Hispanic immigration to the United States. Uh, let me skip ahead to a couple more. Charlottesville. Um, I think we have a tape on Charlottesville. Can we play that? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
So this gentleman, James Fields, drove a car uh, into uh, a crowd of people. This was at the quote-unquote Unite the Right rally. You saw a little clip of some of the things that they were chanting at the front end of that. Uh, I got to say, this was a wake-up call for me. When I first heard uh, the chant, the Jews will not replace us, I had no idea what they were talking about. In fact, I thought I was mishearing because I'd never heard the concept. Uh, but this is the, national, the, the replacement theory stuff. Uh, that animates many of these individuals who go out and can commit these killings. Um, and it's carried out in multiple ways across um, lines that connects these gentlemen up. You know, I, I, the piece I saw in Timothy McVeigh said that um, he tried to recruit people by going to gun shows back when he was, before he committed his crime, uh, but he wasn't able to do it. The big difference between McVeigh then and the, the connections now uh, especially between the white nationalist, white supremacist crowd, is that they don't need to go meet with each other. They just go on the Internet. And the Internet is an inst instantaneous connection that links them up and shares the same, uh, you know, uh, ideology that motivates a lot of this activity. I want to hit one last one of these before I stop, and then I'll make a, a quick comment going forward. But in doing research for this, I, I came across something I'd never heard of, uh, but apparently it's a very serious problem that I really think this committee should look at. It's called incel, and what that that's short for uh, involuntary celibacy. And this is a group of men um, who are imitating a guy named Elliot Roger, who has the philosophy that men should be able to have sex with women uh, of their choice at any time that they want. Uh, and... Many times they go out and, and they've been killing people. This guy, Elliot Roger, who spawned this, killed six uh, people and attacked 14, uh, stabbed three to death, and he also used an assault weapon as well. He tried to go to a sorority house near the University of California at Santa Barbara to try and target these women. The bottom line for me on this is that and I think there's a good hearing that we need to have uh, on this issue of ideological violence in the United States. I don't mean any offense to the witnesses at the table, but this isn't the, the group to do that with. Ms. Gaines, I, I respect your position. You've, you've snapped back at me on a couple of things uh, on, on the Internet, and that's fine. Uh, and I think college violence is important, but it's not really the same type of issue that we should be talking about here, I think. I mean, my, my university president, Chris Eisgruber, addressed the Stanford issue directly and gave solutions to how to fix it. I think that's an important issue that we have to have, but I don't think this is really the topic to cover it. And Mr. Erickson, I, I appreciate your testimony and your experience. I hope that it, when you testify, you'll give some of the, the background. I think, for example, in your testimony, you said something about there been Antifa's responsible for dozens of deaths. I hope you'll have a chance to be more specific, or maybe it was Mr. Rose, I'm, I'm not sure, but I hope one of you all will be able to be more specific and talk not only about at least what deaths we're talking about, but the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why. And most importantly, what are the solutions for trying to address this? So I hope that we'll be able to get to a point where we can use the Homeland Security Committee to address Homeland Security problems and try and re meet the root causes of this issue so we can push back on it. And with that, I yield back. Thank you, Ranking Member Ivey. I now recognize the Ranking Member of the full committee, Mr. Thompson of Mississippi, for his opening statement. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and I welcome our panel of witnesses today. Before I begin, I'd like to join 
with the people of Buffalo, New York, in observing a recent one-year anniversary of the Topps supermarket shooting, in which a far-right extremist who embraced the Great Replacement Theory killed 10 people in a racist rampage. Marking the anniversary of the Buffalo supermarket shooting with a hearing on left-wing extremism displays a shocking lack of sensitivity to the scores of individuals harmed by far-right violence. At best, today's hearing is a missed opportunity to conduct meaningful oversight over how the government is combating the disturbing trend in right-wing violence that is wreaking havoc on communities across the country. At worst, it's a shameful attempt to whitewash and deflect attention from inaction on gun violence and the threat posed by far-right extremist groups by vastly overstating the consequences of left-wing extremism. Allow me to provide some additional context to recent violent extremist events. In 2020, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence assessed that domestic extremists motivated, motivated by white extremists and anti-government ideologies pose the most persistent and lethal threats to the nation. Data supports that conclusion. According to the University of Maryland's National Consortium on the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, there have been 174 mass casualty plots by right-wing extremists and 52 plots resulting in injuries or deaths between 1990 and 2021. During that same period, there have been 29 four mass casualty plots by left-wing extremists and 11 plots resulting in injuries or death. Moreover, according to the Anti-Defamation League, far-right extremists committed every single one of the 25 extremist-related murders that occurred in 2022. White supremacists committed 21 of those 25 murders. To be clear, Democrats condemn violence in every form, ideology motivated or otherwise. That is why earlier this year, I sought to add language to the committee's oversight plan, committing to, do, to doing our part to combat domestic violent extremism and anti-Semitism. Every single Republican opposed my amendment. It is also worth noting that despite Republican efforts to link left-wing extremists to congressional Democrats, Democrats do not court the vote or support of far-left extremist groups. In contrast, when he was asked to condemn white supremacists and militia, former President Trump directed the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. Three months later, as the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and other far-right extremists attacked the Capitol, to thwart the peaceful transfer of power, even as they were beating police officers, it took the former president 187 minutes, over three hours, to direct the attackers to leave the Capitol. Not only did the former president fail to condemn far right groups and ideologies, he allowed them to flourish. Now they are emboldened. For example, in November, a white supremacist murdered five and shot 17 at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado. 
Last month, we learned that a low-level National Guardsman in Massachusetts, with a love of guns and a desire for a race war, leaked highly classified documents relating to military operations in Ukraine, jeopardizing national security and the lives of thousands. And just this month, a neo-Nazi murdered nine and injured 10 others in a mass shooting at a mall in Allen, Texas. Mr. Chairman, historical data makes clear that far-right extremists, particularly white supremacists, are a clear and present threat to the homeland security. Recent events show the problem is getting worse, not better. Unfortunately, my Republican colleagues choose to ignore the threats posed by right-wing extremism in favor of playing politics. I urge my colleagues to focus on the facts and use their power and influence to combat dangerous, deadly, far-right violence. Before I close, I'd like to call attention to the disturbing connection between guns and domestic violent extremism. ADL found that guns were used in 83% of murders involving domestic extremists in 2021, and that 10,000 people every year are victims of hate crimes involving guns. We owe it to communities like Buffalo and Allen to do more than send thoughts and prayers. We need to take meaningful action to make people safer. With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back the balance of my time. Thank you, Mr. Thompson. Other members of the committee are reminded that opening statements may be submitted for the record. I'm pleased to have a distinguished panel of witnesses before us today on this very important topic. I ask that our witnesses please rise and raise their right hand. Do you solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony you will give before the Committee on Homeland Security of the United States House of Representatives will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Let the record reflect that the witnesses have answered in the affirmative. Thank you. Please be seated. I would now like to formally introduce our witnesses. Ms. Riley Gaines is a spokeswoman for the Independent Women's Forum and 12-time NCAA All-American swimmer. Mr. Scott Erickson is the former Deputy Chief of Staff of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and a former San Jose police officer. Ms. Amy Spitalnik is the incoming Chief Executive Officer for the Jewish Council for Public Affairs. Mr. Julio Rosas is a senior writer for Town Hall and an author. I thank all the witnesses for being here today. I now recognize you, Ms. Gaines, for five minutes for your opening statement. Thank you, Chairman Bishop, Ranking Member Ivey, and Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee for inviting me to speak to you today. My name is Riley Gaines, and I'm a 12-time All-American swimmer from the University of Kentucky. Competing in the women's division of the, 200, or of the 2022 NCAA Championships, myself and my teammates and competitors around the country were required to compete and share a locker room with Leah Thomas, a biological male who competed on the men's team at University of Pennsylvania as well, Thomas, the three years prior. In the 200-yard freestyle at the NCAA Championships, Thomas and I tied. Despite going the exact same time down to the hundredth of a second, the NCAA insisted on giving Thomas the trophy as they explained this was necessary for photo purposes and told me that I had to go home empty-handed. At our national championships, I looked around and wondered why no one was standing up for myself and the other women in the pool and in that locker room. As I talked to my teammates and competitors at the championships, I discovered that the overwhelming majority of the girls 
shared the extreme discomfort of being forced to strip down in front of a male who was intact with and exposing male genitalia in that same room. After seeing how this affected every girl at that meet, I decided I would stand up and speak out. I put my plans for my future, which included dental school, on hold after graduation and decided to fight for women and girls in sports. Last December, I joined the nation's most influential women's organization, making gains to stand up for women's rights and against discrimination of women in single-sex spaces. Independent Women's Forum and its C4 sister organization, Independent Women's Voice, um, and I serve as a spokeswoman there. But I've spent this past year speaking about the need to keep women's sports for females only and to safeguard women's privacy, security, and access to a fair playing field. The right to privacy and equal opportunities for women are not being protected by Title IX. Even worse than the efforts to dismantle Title IX are the efforts to silence and intimidate us through the use of every means available, whether that be fear, shame, threats, emotional blackmail, gaslighting, to try to keep us from speaking out against the efforts to deprive women of their rights. I believe the coerced silencing of women and men by college administrators who will not let us speak freely about injustices now being faced by women in sports is one of the most important free speech issues of our time. Seeing how universities were not allowing students to truthfully consider all perspectives, I found it necessary to travel to colleges all over the country to share my experience surrounding the injustices being faced by women in sports and the systemic attempt to erase women as a whole. In April, on April 6th of 2023, I traveled to San Francisco State University to speak to a campus group on the right of women to compete on a level playing field in sport. The school administration was aware of my visit and the program had been publicized on campus. I was told I would be met by the campus police and briefed on a security plan an hour and a half before the event, but the police failed to show up to our scheduled meeting. I went to the classroom building where I was to speak, which was on the third floor, um, and I entered the room, which soon began to fill with protesters. Still, the campus officers did not show like I was told they would, and I began my speech, and the protesters in the room, they were not generally disruptive. However, I could hear chanting from outside the hallway, and I sensed the situation outside was growing confrontational, which was unnerving, um, but no one provided any guidance to alert me that my safety was at risk. They continuously chanted outside the room, we fight back, and that's when I began to fear for my safety. As I ended my presentation, protesters in the room opened the locked doors and a chaotic flood of shouting, angry protesters forced their way in. They rushed at me with fists raised, most shouting and, and angry faces coming around me. They flickered the lights and ultimately then turned the lights off. Um, the room filled with glares of cell phone flashlights, some in my face, and I realized I was at the mercy of the crowd and I was assaulted. A woman grabbed me and told me she was with the campus police and pulled me towards the door, but I did not believe she was with the police because she wore no clothes that indicated she was an officer and she had a face covering on so I couldn't see her face. And I resisted going with her, but I recognized I really had no choice because I couldn't have made it out without help. And again, I, I really, truly feared for my life. But once we made it into the hallway, we were met with an even larger mob blocking the stairway exit, ultimately forcing us to barricade ourselves into an office alongside the same hallway. The small room we had found would be my prison for the next three hours. And in those hours, I was certainly held against my will. The mob screamed vengeful, racist, violent, awful things at both myself and the officers, and I received no assurance that I would get out of that situation. When I needed consoling from the officers because I was so flustered and confused, they told me they could not provide me with that because it seemed too controversial for them. When I had expressed that I had been hit, no one asked me if I was okay or no one asked me if I needed medical attention. 
When I realized I missed my flight back home due to being held hostage, I became visibly upset and told the lieutenant in the room that I just wanted to make it home, and he responded back with, don't you think we all want to go home? After a while, some of these protesters began to demand a ransom for my release. They had asked for payment and threatened not to safely release me without it, and I heard an adult administrator who I learned to be the dean of students from outside um, the door trying to negotiate my release with the students. They said my appearance on campus was so traumatic that they were owed something. They were under the false notion that the university paid me to be there. Therefore, they only thought it was fair that I should pay them if I wanted to leave. After hours of being held against my will, the officers from the city of San Francisco Police Department finally, finally arrived, and they were much more methodical and assertive in developing a strategy. And it was around midnight that I was finally able to leave. Um, okay. I had to run to the car. Ask you to sum up as soon as you can. Yes. Um, I'll just read this last paragraph here. Um, free speech suffers when university administrators do not condemn violence and kidnapping on their campus. It's chilled when administrators do not adequately prepare for and protect the safety of their speakers, whether liberal or conservative. And free speech is undermined when administrators misrepresent and malign the views of those with whom they disagree. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am, for your statement. Uh, and now I recognize Mr. Scott Erickson for five minutes for his opening statement. Well, good afternoon. Thank you, Chairman Bishop, Ranking Member Ivey, and Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee for giving me the opportunity to speak today on the important issue of political violence and, in particular, its impact on the law enforcement community. I'd also like to take a moment to acknowledge the conclusion of Police Week here in Washington, D.C., an important time of the year where we honor the police officers who have made the ultimate sacrifice in service to their communities. I currently serve as the director of the Center for Law and Justice at the America First Policy Institute. Prior to joining AFPI, I spent three years at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, where I served in a variety of roles, including as deputy chief of staff during the summer of 2020, a period marred by widespread civil unrest and leftist-inspired violence, much of which was directed at the law enforcement community. Earlier in my career, I spent nearly two decades as a uniformed police officer in the city of San Jose. As a second-generation police officer, law enforcement has been and remains an important part of my identity. The integrity of the law enforcement profession is of vital importance to not just public safety, but to the maintenance of the rule of law itself. A civil society cannot function unless the institutions designed to uphold it remain intact. The rise of unchecked violence, particularly the phenomenon of anarchist or anti-fascist criminal activity, has caused untold damage to communities across our nation. It has also had a debilitating effect on law enforcement. Combined with the associated rise of anti-police rhetoric and the inane defund the police movement, these phenomena have contributed to a generational crisis in recruiting and retention within the law enforcement profession. For those officers who remain in the job, morale is the lowest it's been in a generation. Confronting the rise of organized far-left violence poses operational and tactical challenges for law enforcement. Every department's capacity to address these challenges is unique, and each is equipped with different resources, training, expertise, and personnel. To improve the ability of departments to effectively confront these challenges often requires cross-jurisdictional collaboration and robust information sharing across the spectrum of federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. It is here where our federal partners can play an outsized role, particularly in the receipt, analysis, and dissemination of critical information relevant to emerging threats. Fusion centers, for instance, utilize a hub-and-spoke approach to synthesize and distribute information within and among state and local law enforcement partners. 
federal law enforcement operating within the context of these information sharing systems can often provide a more global view in emerging threats than what is available at the state or local level alone. And they often have better visibility on spatially diffuse threats potentially coalescing toward a specific target. Examples of ideologically aligned violent opportunists traveling across state lines to carry out coordinated acts of violence were evident in the recent attacks on the as-yet-completed Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. Of the 23 individuals arrested for crimes ranging from vandalism to assault, only two were from the state of Georgia. Two others were not even from the United States, but had ostensibly traveled to Atlanta to engage in this coordinated criminal behavior. More information means better preparation. The sooner a law enforcement agency is aware that a coordinated act of violence may be forthcoming, the better that agency will be able to marshal the resources necessary to effectively address the threat and protect their communities. Robust collaboration is essential to the effective administration of justice. When such collaboration is absent, negative public safety outcomes become more likely. Portland over the summer of 2020 is a stark example. Local political intransigence prevented basic cooperation among federal, state, and local partners, resulting in over 100 days of violence and chaos as federal law enforcement personnel remained under siege within the Hatfield Federal Courthouse. The political violence that occurred in Portland and elsewhere throughout the country during the summer of 2020 was disgraceful, and it should never happen again. Let me conclude by saying that while each citizen has a role to play in the maintenance of an orderly society, it is the men and women of law enforcement who undergird that proposition. We must empower them to do their jobs safely and effectively. Thank you again for the opportunity to discuss this important topic, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Erickson. And I now recognize Ms. Amy Spitalnik for five minutes for her opening statement. I hope I said your name correctly. You did. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Bishop, Ranking Members Ivy and Thompson, members of the committee. I'm grateful to be here today. In addition to serving as the Senior Advisor on Extremism and Human Rights First, I'm also the incoming CEO of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs. I previously led Integrity First for America, the nonpartisan nonprofit that held accountable those responsible for the 2017 Charlottesville violence. Many of us remember the horror of neo-Nazis with torches chanting, Jews will not replace us or the violence the next day culminating in the car attack that claimed Heather Heyer's life and injured so many others. That violence was no accident. Rather, it was planned meticulously on social media and other channels down to discussions of hitting protesters with cars and claiming self-defense. As the evidence in our lawsuit made clear and as the jury agreed, finding every single defendant liable, these extremists planned violence, came to Charlottesville to engage in that violence and then celebrated that violence. This matters not just because a woman was murdered and so many others previously injured. It matters because Unite the Right was a flashpoint in the rise of deadly white supremacist extremism, a harbinger of a cycle of far-right violence that continues to claim lives around the country. Charlottesville, Pittsburgh, El Paso, January 6th, Buffalo, and this month, Allen, Texas. These are just a few of many examples I could cite. We're experiencing a tidal wave of white supremacist violence but I don't just wanna share examples. I wanna talk about data. According to the ADL, every single extremist-related murder in 2022 was committed by right-wing extremists. The vast majority were white supremacists. Over the past decade, 96% of the events in which extremists killed someone were committed by people with right-wing ideologies. In the same period, three quarters of extremism-linked murders were committed by right-wing actors, while only 4% were linked to left-wing actors. Research from the START Center at the University of Maryland also shows that in the last 30 years, 
far-right actors were responsible for 74% of planned or successful terrorist attacks by domestic extremists, while far-left perpetrators were responsible for just 13%. It's not just NGOs and academic institutions tracking this disproportionate threat. In late 2020, former President Trump's Department of Homeland Security found that white supremacists were, quote, the most persistent and lethal threat in the United States. This isn't to say that other forms of political violence don't exist. Of course they do. That includes left-wing or anarchist violence, Islamist violence, or violence that doesn't fit neatly into one particular ideology. And there was a time when left-wing extremist violence was a bigger threat, nearly 50 years ago during the 1970s. But since the 1990s, available data show that right-wing extremism has consistently been the most violent domestic terror threat. Unless we're clear-eyed about the facts, we'll never be able to intervene and break the cycle of extremism. It's all the more important to understand this reality because it's not happening in a vacuum. The rise in right-wing extremism has gone hand-in-hand -hand with an increasing normalization of right-wing extremism. Conspiracy theories, once relegated to the dark corners of the internet, like the Great Replacement, are espoused not just by mass murderers, but by elected officials, candidates, and pundits. Policies aimed at dehumanizing and stripping away the rights of certain communities are fueling attacks on those very communities. Violent extremists take this normalization of conspiracy theories and bigotry as license. It's not just a threat to our communities, it directly threatens our democracy and our national security. So what do we do? While we should invest in responsive measures like security, we can't simply sue, prosecute, or barricade our way out of this crisis. We need comprehensive solutions with real accountability, support for targeted communities, and societal resilience. This includes investing in and protecting democratic institutions, addressing the threat of extremism in the military and law enforcement, empowering communities with tools to prevent radicalization, like media and digital literacy, education and resources for parents, educators and caregivers, making it harder for violent extremists to get their hands on the deadly weapons too often used in these acts of mass violence, and building cross-community coalitions that recognize none of us are safe if one of us isn't safe. The facts and the data are clear. We're grappling with a very real threat of right-wing extremism. Every statistic affirms that the vast majority of extremist violence is perpetrated by those motivated by white supremacist and other right-wing ideologies. Acknowledging that doesn't take away from the fact that other forms of political violence exist. But this moment requires us to be clear-eyed about our reality before to do something about it. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here today and look forward to your questions. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ms. Bastalnik. Uh, I now recognize Mr. Julio Rosas for five minutes for his opening statement. Thank you, Chairman Bishop and this committee for having this hearing on what I believe to be an important subject that is often overlooked in the national discourse. What has been happening in and around Atlanta over the police training facility is part of the ongoing repercussions of the BLM and Antifa riots in 2020. In my capacity as the senior writer for Town Hall, I covered many of these BLM and Antifa riots firsthand, and I can tell you that these were very destructive events not just in the moment into the cities in which they occurred, but also to our nation's overall approach to law and order. During that chaotic time in our country's history, the same story repeated itself. The far left organized to attack not only police officers, but also neighborhoods and innocent bystanders, many of whom were minorities. Sometimes the anger was over justified police actions, like the riot in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I wanna be clear, yes, there were BLM protests that were peaceful, 
The common statistic that is cited is around 93% of them were peaceful. And to that, I say, thank goodness. Because in that 7% of violence, over $2 billion worth of damage was done to places across the country, sometimes repeatedly in the same area. Dozens of lives were lost, and an untold number were hurt or injured, with myself being included. I also want to make clear that Antifa is very much a real movement within the United States, and they can pose a real threat to the safety of innocent Americans. They are not, as Representative Jerry Nadler has claimed, a myth. I have seen their destructive actions firsthand. In the aftermath of so many riots, I have seen the ongoing decay that lawlessness brings in so many of our cities. The criminal elements saw how a fragile police force can be when they are underfunded and undersupported. These days, it does not even take a controversial police action to spark riots. We saw this recently in Chicago and Los Angeles just a few weeks ago. Today, the issue is not necessarily police funding. Because of the increase in crime, localities who did take away money in the name of social justice have put the money back, but the damage was done. Today's criminals have no fear because why would they? Law enforcement is understaffed, and even when arrests are made, pro-criminal DAs give them sweetheart deals so they can go back out and commit crimes again. What is being done under the guise of anti-racist measures has led to minority communities being terrorized by this encouraged criminal element. Because of what happened three years ago, the far left is emboldened to occupy a force to attack police, the construction company, and the downtown area. It is a forced version of the autonomous zone created in Seattle that was allowed to exist despite its dangers for almost a month in 2020. I do not know where this country is headed, but I anticipate that intentions are not lowered and action is not taken. Events like the outcome of the 2024 presidential election may spark another wave of violence that the country might not come back from. The anger and breakdown of order is real. It is visceral. I have seen it for myself in both our inner cities and at our southern border, where I just recently returned from in El Paso. The law enforcement agencies and the judicial system must take steps now if they want to prevent a continuation of the recent violence. If they do not, then I suspect I will be as busy as I was in 2020. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rosas. Members will be recognized by order of seniority for their five minutes of questioning. An additional round of questioning may be called after all members have been recognized. I now recognize myself for five minutes of questioning. Well, Mr. Russo said, as you note in your book, we've seen this phenomenon where members of Congress, you just made reference to Mr. Nadler referring to Antifa as a myth, that it's a false issue. Uh, the FBI director said that Antifa is, quote, not a group or an organization, it's a movement or an ideology, end quote. Secretary Mayorkas insists that Antifa should not be called domestic terrorists. Uh, it seems to me we've got to distinguish between ideological movements and those who lapse over into something beyond that. You made a, 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 a distinction talking about BLM prop, uh, um, protests, that 93% were were peaceful, but the 7% were remarkably destructive and violent. Speak to that. Isn't it important for all of us to draw those distinctions clearly and not slough them over, not not blur them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just because, you know, Antifa is, they, they have, as you mentioned, they, they very much operate on a decentralized uh, small unit level. Uh, and that's on purpose so that law enforcement has a harder, local law enforcement has a harder time 
uh, trying to take action and take it down because if they take down one cell, there's another one in the same area, particularly Portland and the Pacific Northwest. Um, there's even some here in the D.C. area. Uh, so, yes, I mean, it, it's, this isn't complicated. This is this is a real movement that people identify with and they have historically, even before 2020, taken uh, violent action against uh, innocent people. As best I've been able to see, Antifa in particular, and the just observations I've made, they are organized around the notion of violent protest. Um, yes. And uh, it, I, I guess I'd, I'd ask you if that's an accurate understanding. And so if they exist in these small cells, maybe linked by this ideology of some sort, um, what, how, do they, how are they organized and led and how do they interact and coordinate with each other? And how do they get their funds, if you have insight about that? Uh, so, I mean, just how any other group kind of organizes today, I mean, they all use social media. Half the reason why I knew where to be in 2020 is because they advertise freely on on social media sites like Twitter. Now, this is uh, pre-Elon Musk Twitter. Uh, some some of them have been taken down in the time since he took over, but uh, they, they organize on social media. They organize in uh, encrypted chats uh, as well. And when it comes to funding, I mean, they, they openly uh, solicit donations on their PayPal's, Venmo's. Uh, cash app, and that's kind of how they, at least publicly, are able to sustain themselves. I mean, just from personal experience, you know, I used to live in the D.C. area, unfortunately, and they, uh, <laughs> I would see uh, some of the same people over and over again uh, at, at these protests, and I would kind of wonder how you're able to hold down a job if you're constantly at, at, at these things. And of course, I'm there because that's that's my job to, to, to cover what they're doing. So um, it's not really complicated. They, they organize openly uh, on social media in, in, more, in more discreet ways, and they raise money openly, too. Thank you, Mr. Rosas. Mr. Erickson, uh, and somewhat quickly, because I've got a limited amount of time left, um, is, from your perspective, your experience in Homeland Security, is Antifa, uh, groups like that, a real threat that needs to be attended to by Congress and by the department? Absolutely, it's a real threat. And during the summer of 2020, when I was at Homeland Security, I traveled with the then-secretary to Portland uh, to visit with our federal law enforcement officers who were at that time in the midst of well over a month of continued, sustained, violent assault. Uh, it's a very real uh, phenomenon. It's a very real danger, and we should deal with it. Ms. Gaines, uh, toward the end of your statement, I sort of had to hurry you along at the end, but I want to get to that in particular. I was troubled and it was just spoken of uh, outside the hearing before that uh, the vice president for student affairs at San Francisco sort of lauded what happened to you, or, or at least uh, said that it was people who attacked you demonstrated, quote, the value of free speech and the right to protest peacefully. What's your reaction to statements like that about the mob that you confronted? You got about 45 seconds. You can take it off. What I saw was not peaceful by any means. Um, the vice president released this, uh, an email to their student body applauding, word for word, I applaud the tremendously brave students who behaved the way they did. Um, which when I read this, knowing what I know, what I went through, seeing what I saw, that was not peaceful. Um, and to applaud that behavior from an institution of higher education is chilling. It's terrifying that that is something we're encouraging, we're, or encouraging, we're celebrating. By no means did they say we uphold the freedom of speech or condemn violence. I think that's a critically important point, and I appreciate your make, making it. Uh, I, my time has expired. I now recognize Ranking Member Ivy for five minutes for questions she may have. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ms. Gaines, I, this is a topic that's a little off topic for the hearing, I think, but wasn't the 
Stanford official who made those comments removed from her position? Um, this was at the San Francisco State University, so I'm not entirely sure about Stanford, but she was not removed. Her name is Dr. Jamila Moore, and she's the vice president of student affairs. Right, but the praising of these kinds of activities on college campuses, do you, do you know about some of the steps other universities have taken to try and address this? I'm just here to talk about what happened at San Francisco State University. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, let me ask this. Let me read this piece here. Um, just over 27 years ago, the prominent white supremacist Lewis Beam Jr. published a now infamous essay titled Leaderless Resistance. Extremist organizations, Beam argued, were too vulnerable to government disruption. The future of white supremacy was individual. Lone actors and small self-organized groups that could take uh, action at their own initiative was the way to go. Um, Mr. Rosas, um, let, me, let me ask you, um, if you're familiar with this lone actor approach that's been taken by some of the uh, right-wing extremists, especially the ones who are committing massive attacks that are killing multiple people, have you seen any of those activities? On the news, yes. Okay, have you researched or studied any, any of those activities? Well, which one specifically? Like, are, are we talking about El Paso, Buffalo, or? Pick one. Yeah, I, I mean, unfortunately, there's dozens of these. And yes, yeah, so you I, take Charlottesville. I mean, what yeah, you, I, I was there covering it. I was there. Okay. Yeah. I'm acutely aware of what happened there. Okay. Yeah. Did that, did you find that troubling and disturbing? Of course. I, okay. I also found it troubling that a majority a big reason for the violence was how ill-prepared local law enforcement was. Mm. There was right. a, they were not separating the two sides. I walked through the crowd and I found myself in between the two sides fighting and there were state police on the other side of the road. All right. So you're blaming the police for the, you're not blaming the police for the killing of, of the I'm, I'm blaming the poor planning because uh, when, when there's event, when there's big events like that, you want to make sure that no vehicles are able to drive in those areas to prevent exactly what happened later on that afternoon. So there was multiple failures, just like January 6th, there's multiple failures to adequately prepare. I'll, I'll come back to January 6th, but the killing Ms. Hire, you agree with the neo-Nazi, Mr. Fields, who drove the car and, and hit her with that, right? I'm sorry, you repeat the question? The neo-Nazi who drove yeah. the car that killed Ms. Hire, you'll agree, was responsible for her death. Well, directly, right? absolutely, yeah. Right, and he was convicted, I think he pled guilty to two, two different sets of charges, has a double life sentence he's serving. You agree with that? Yeah. All right, and then there was a civil suit. I actually, you might be some connected to that, Ms. Spitalnik, uh, in which leaders of the organization, which helped to support this Unite the, the Right rally, were held to be liable, and, and I, I, there were damages imposed. I don't remember the amount, but you understand that that happened as well, right? Yes. Okay, and those were, uh, and there were civil rights violations that were connect connected with those activities, right? Okay, sure. Okay, and with respect to... January 6th, I guess I'll come to you, Mr. Erickson. You mentioned that Portland was disgraceful and should never happen again. And I, I certainly agree with that position. Would you agree that January 6th was disgraceful, disgraceful and should never happen again? Yes, I would. Okay. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to ask you with respect to the solutions, you talked a little bit about some of the activities, but this, this committee's had a hearing with respect to, um, well, it, one of the issues we could have considered at that hearing was countering false information, disinformation that um, pushes these kinds of ideologies forward. When you were at Homeland Security, did you pursue any of those activities or do you think that that would be 
useful in some of these scenarios to try and address whether you think it's right or left wing violence uh, that we should try and address it in those ways? I don't think it's the government's place to necessarily get, be in the business of de deciding what is or is not appropriate speech. Um, I think that, you know, obviously there's plenty of misinformation and disinformation floating around on the Internet. I think people have to be mature consumers of that information. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, this is a little off topic for this, but um, false allegations about um, active shooters at elementary schools and communities. We now have a scenario where people, uh, rather than pulling the, uh, the fire alarm for whatever reason, now we're making calls saying there's an active shooter in elementary school X, even though there isn't one. Would you agree that that's something that the government should take steps to respond to and denounce so that parents don't go crazy, police don't go down with weapons drawn and accidentally shoot somebody, teachers don't freak out? Do you think that would be appropriate to address that kind of misinformation? Of course. Okay. Uh, my time has expired. I yield back. Uh, gentleman yields back. Thank you. And I now recognize the ranking member of the full committee, Mr. Thompson, for his five minutes of question. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Erickson, what was your position at DHS? I held a number of positions. I was there from February of 2018 until January of 2021. So I was the law enforcement advisor in the Office of Partnerships and Engagement. I was law enforcement counselor to three secretaries. I was deputy chief of staff and very briefly acting chief of staff at the end. So are you familiar with the data uh, produced by DHS relative to domestic terrorism? It depends what data you're speaking of. Uh, the Office of Intelligence and Analysis publishes an annual report on domestic terrorism. I'm familiar with the Office of Intelligence and Analysis. I'm not familiar with the specific data points that you may be referencing. So if I told you that the Director of Intelligence and Analysis and the Director of the FBI annually report to this committee, would you understand that that what happens? Yes. If I told you that in both instances, the Director of Intelligence and Analysis and the FBI said the number one domestic terrorist threat to the homeland was radical right-wing extremism. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, you're referencing the undersecretary, I assume, of INA, Intelligence and Analysis, and the director of the FBI. Um, yes, I'm familiar with that. I'm also familiar with the fact that that was referenced in the 2020 Homeland Threat Assessment that was released, again, under the Trump administration. So, so the number one threat to the homeland is radical right-wing domestic terrorism. Well, I mean, if you're saying what's the number one threat to the homeland, I would I would say that the 100,000 lives lost to opioids largely fueled no, by the fentanyl. No, well, that's no, affecting the no, homeland. Now, based on the testimony and in that report, uh, were you, since you're familiar with it, just repeat for the committee what those two individuals say. If you're speaking about domestic terror threat, then that yes. Was, yes, what you said is accurate. It is correct, right? So, correct. Um, and the data says that radical right-wing uh, domestic terrorism is the number one threat to the homeland. Um, in your 
report to the department. Uh, why would you see going after a, a smaller percent of the threat rather than the larger percent of the threat? Uh, I'm sorry, which report? My report? No, no. The same report I just asked you about. Okay, why are we discussing left-wing domestic well, I, you, 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 you never mentioned right-wing. Everything you talked about was about left-wing. Correct. And I'm saying, so why you're would you left wing? a smaller component Violence. of it when as data shows just the opposite? Well, I was asked to testify in a hearing, I believe, titled left-wing extremism. Okay. So if I ask you, in your professional opinion, what's the most serious threat to the homeland, radical right-wing extremism or left-wing extremism based on the data? I just want to be clear. If you're talking about the greatest threat to the homeland, I would take a much larger aperture in terms of what I'm looking at other than domestic terrorism. I'd be looking at the threat from China, Russia, uh, no, no, the Southern... No, no. No, well, that's... No, I, I understand. Okay. But you, gave, you gave testimony uh, to this committee about left wing. Correct. So what's your testimony if I ask you a question about right wing, which is the most documented threat based on testimony from the Director of National Intelligence and the FBI? I would say that I condemn right wing terrorism, white supremacist extremism, left wing terrorism. I condemn all politically motivated violence in this country. Based on the data, are you familiar on, with which Betty. one is the most? This is ridiculous. Yes. Which one is? Uh, according to the data that you cited, right-wing extremism is, is responsible for more deaths uh, than left-wing extremism. But to act like one, only one exists and to ignore the other does a disservice to the American people. And Thank I think you. that's the point of this hearing. Are you okay? The gentleman yields back. I now recognize the gentle, uh, gentlewoman from Georgia, Mrs. Green, for her five minutes of question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, first of all, Riley, I want to thank you for being here today. And I, I want to recognize that you are a hero and a champion to women and little girls all over the country. And your bravery and courage is admired not only by little girls and women, but by Americans all over. And this goes across the political divide. I, I think you, you probably had no idea all the years you spent training in the pool, working out, you had no idea, earning your college scholarship, competing in the sport, women's sport, by the way, that you trained to compete in. You had no idea that you'd be sitting in a committee before Congress about left-wing organized violence. But here you are today. And um, I think that all started with having to compete with a man who's six foot one named William Thomas, a biological male that invaded your sport, invaded your privacy, and came in to defeat, demoralize, and, and completely destroy the sport that you love. And so, number one, I want to recognize that, and I want to thank you. I'd also like to ask you a, a question here. You said, uh, and this is in your testimony, you said that you, you were threatened, intimidated, assaulted, and held hostage 
Um, and I'd like to just give you a minute to go ahead and expand on that uh, when you, you weren't able to finish. And please, please expand on that. Right. I'll kind of, I know you guys saw a brief snippet of what I saw for hours. Um, so I'll kind of expand on kind of what was being yelled and said to me to, to elaborate on why I'm here on behalf of condemning violence. In this room where I was held hostage and essentially held for ransom, actually not essentially, I was held for ransom, the protesters from outside the room were yelling at the officers who were on the outside of the door protecting me. You're only protecting her because she's a white girl. Um, and of course, these officers then were terrified. Um, they were terrified to do their job because who wants to be accused of that accusation? They were yelling things such as, you shouldn't have came here. You knew this was going to happen. You were asking for this. Open that door and let us at her and we'll handle her. She doesn't get to go home safely. She doesn't Ms. deserve Gaines, to go home to her family. Were they, you were there that day. What was the topic you were speaking on? That is, let me reiterate what I was there speaking on. I was there speaking on behalf of protecting women's sports. My speech consisted of, I probably spoke for 45 minutes, which I opened it up for question and answers afterwards, encouraging I actually only opened it to opposing questions because I wanted to have this conversation, um, not because I want controversy, but because I want to have that open dialogue. I think that's how we create solutions. Mm -hmm. um, my speech consisted of, I, of course, talk about what it means to be a female athlete, the amount of training, the dedication, the sacrifices that you have to give to compete at the level I was competing at. That national championships is the fastest meet in the entire world. Um, I talked about what that experience looked like. I talked about the locker room. I talked about the silencing, the very real silencing that we dealt with uh, because of our universities. Um, and of course, and, and Miss Gaines, may I ask you any of the people that threatened your life, your safety, kidnapped you, and held you hostage in that room that day? Were any of those right wing extremists? Um, no. The people who are in the room for the speech portion, it was about fifty percent protesters versus 50% supporters. But of course, the aftermath of, of really the ambush, um, again, I, I can't tell you every single one of their political affiliation, but I can almost certainly say that there were no um, right-leaning protesters in that room. Okay. I, and I want to I wanna point out, because there's been a lot lost here, uh, let's talk about the recent um, four mass shootings in the past five years, Colorado Springs shooter identified as non-binary, Denver, Denver shooter identified as trans, Aberdeen shooter identified as trans, Audrey Hale, the Nashville shooter, identified as trans, but trans people only make up about one half of 1% of the population. Just recently, there was a trans day of vengeance, uh, which is definitely not right-wing extremism or violence. This looks terrifying, and it's definitely from the left, because on the right, I can assure you we believe in two genders. It's male and female. And we support Title IX women's sports, you, Riley Gaines, and any other female athlete that wants biological men to stay out of their sports dressing rooms and women's privacy areas. This is what left-wing extremism and violence stems from, is the movement that wants to use trans terrorism against Americans, violating uh, the whole idea of biological science, that there's two genders, and that children should not be coerced and, and brainwashed into this into this sick ideology. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. The gentleman yields back, and uh, I now recognize Dr. Tandar of Michigan for his five minutes of questions. 
Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, I ask uh, unanimous consent to enter into the record the Trump administration's homeland threat assessment that says that among domestic violent extremists, white supremacist extremists will remain the most persistent and lethal threat in the homeland. Without objection, so on. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. When we look at political violence, we must make a distinction between violence against people versus violence against property. As ranking member Ivy has pointed out, right-wing violence has been far, far deadlier than left-wing violence. Mr. Chairman, I would like to read the names of just a handful of recent victims of right-wing political violence. Again, these are names of men, women, and children, neighbors, nieces, and nephews, grandmas, and grandpas who were killed by right-wing violence. Less than two weeks ago, on May 6th in Allen, Texas, a shooter wearing a vest reading, right-wing death squad killed Daniel and Sophia Mendoza, age 11 and eight. Aishwarya Tatikonda, age 26. Christian Lacour, age 20. Elio Kumana Rivas, age 32. Cindy and Caillou Cho, age 35 and 37, and their son, James Joe, age three. Hmm. On November 19th, 2022, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, an anti-LGBTQ motivated shooter killed Daniel Davis Aston, age 28, Kelly Loving, age 40, Ashley Park, age 35, Derek Grump, age 38. Raymond Green Vance, age 22. One year ago, on May 14, 2022, in Buffalo, New York, a white supremacist and proponent of the Great Replacement Theory killed Roberta A. Dury, age 32. Marcus D. Morrison, age 52. Andre McNeil, age 53. Aaron Salter, age 55. Geraldine Talley, age 62. Celestine Chancy, age 65. Hayward Patterson, 
age 67, Catherine Massey, age 72, Paul Young, age 77, Ruth Whitefield, age 86. I'm running out of time and I've only gotten through one year of victims of right-wing attacks. And that doesn't include the many, many victims of mass shooting in which no political ideology was identified, but which were nonetheless enabled by Republicans' refusal to pass common sense gun reforms. Mr. Chair, I yield back. The gentleman yields back. I now recognize Mr. Ezell for his five minutes. Ms. Gaines, I want to thank you for your willingness to testify and your bravery for standing up for women. One thing I'd like to say as a 42-year law enforcement professional, a sheriff, a police chief, a detective, one of the hardest things it is to get these days is to get a person that is willing to testify and to stand up and tell the truth. In your testimony, you described how you were attacked for telling your side of the story. What kind of message does this send to the young women who might be afraid of speaking up? This is something just based off the conversations I've had with girls. I know I briefly mentioned it in my testimony, but the overwhelming majority of those girls who were specifically at that NCAA championships where we raced with Leah Thomas, who's of course a biological male, the overwhelming majority of us girls felt so uncomfortable. We felt betrayed. We felt belittled. We, it's of course in the locker room, especially it's awkward. It's embarrassing. It's again, it's this feeling of the best word to describe it is traumatic. No one protected us. No one stood up for us. And so that's exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. Again, I was totally thrusted into this position. This is not never something I wanted. Um, it's still not something I want to be doing, yet I find it necessary. But the message that it sends, it's, it sends a message that we don't matter, that our feelings, our safety, our privacy, it doesn't matter. We should smile and step aside and allow these men into our spaces, or else you are a bigot. I want you to describe to this committee, I was reading your, uh, in the second paragraph, uh, where, and I'm just going to read it, I discovered that the overwhelming majority of the girls shared extreme discomfort being forced to strip down in front of a male who was intact with and exposing male genitalia in the same room. After seeing how this affected every girl at the meeting, I decided to stand up and speak out. I resolved to do everything I could to ensure that no other girls feel alone in the fight for their right to compete on a level playing field. Describe that locker room experience to this committee, please. First of all, we were not forewarned we would be sharing a changing space. No one told us, no one asked for our consent. We did not give our consent to undress in front of a male. Yet the only time we became aware of this was when it was presented in front of us and it was too late. Um, so what that kind of looked like in the vein of being extremely transparent, a six foot four, he's actually taller than six foot one, a six foot four male walks in, disrobes, and is fully intact with male genitalia while we're simultaneously undressing as 18 to 22 year old girls and we could do nothing about it. I actually immediately left the locker room and I went up to one of the officials on the pool deck and I said, how is this allowed to happen? Uh, you know, I understand the guidelines for the competition, but what are the guidelines in, in regards to the locker room? He looks at me and word for word says, oh, we actually got around this by making the locker rooms unisex, so it's not a big deal. And I 
thought about that in unisex. So this meant that any man could have walked into our locker room, not just a self-identifying female. Bare minimum, we weren't forewarned. And actually, Leah Thomas's teammates who dealt with this every single day, all year, when they expressed their discomfort to their administration and they sent an email, um, and I swear I have a screenshot of their response, their administration responded back with, if you feel uncomfortable seeing male genitalia, here's some counseling resources that you should seek. And that's the general consensus of what's happening around the country, which is why I felt it necessary to get in front of colleges and speak. Um, I think it's so important to engage people my age, 22 years old, to understand what's happening because that's not what you're hearing in the media. Thank you for your courage. Please do not give up your fight. Please do not be afraid to share your testimony. Thank you so much. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you. Gentlemen, yields back. I now recognize Ms. Ramirez of Illinois for her five minutes of question. Thank you, Chairman. I was taken back recognizing that my colleague was just right of me, almost spent five minutes giving names of people who have experienced the worst of the worst threat to our democracy and to themselves um, through right-wing white supremacist ideas. It is clear that the replacement theory and other white supremacist ideas are leading to an increase in violence targeted toward black and brown people and immigrants specifically. In 2019, a far-right far terrorist killed 23 people at a, at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. His hate-filled anti-immigrant manifesto referenced a Hispanic invasion of Texas. That word invasion is a word that I hear frequently in this committee room in the U.S. Congress by Republican members referring to immigrants, so asylum seekers. And these kind of anti-immigrant attacks have not stopped. Less than two weeks ago, a man in Bronxville, Texas, drove an SUV into a group of migrants killing eight people. Police are investigating reports that he yelled anti-immigration rhetoric at the group. This dangerous and disgusting white supremacist rhetoric has fueled deadly violence again and again. White supremacy is anti-Semitic, it is xenophobic, it is racist, it is sexist, it is homophobic, and it is actively harming our communities right before our eyes with multiple instances of extreme violence. And I'll just mention a couple because otherwise I'll run out of time. The 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, that resulted in nine injured in the murder of Heather Heyer. The 2018 anti-Semitic attack on the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh that led to 11 people dying and injuring six more. The 2019 mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, predominantly a Latino neighborhood where a gunman murdered 23 people and injured three more. The 2022 mass shooting in Buffalo, New York that we've heard about where the gunman killed 10 black people and injured Three more? This is not a complete list by any means. And that is why I am honored to be co-leading a resolution that's condemning the great replacement theory that Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York is introducing, again along with other Democratic colleagues. And I strongly urge any of my Republican colleagues here to join us in opposing white supremacy. It shouldn't be hard to do so. And as a woman, 
I take allegations of violence against women very seriously. And as I'm sure you do as well, Ms. Gaines, you said that you are a spokeswoman for the Independent Women's Forum, correct? Yes, correct. That's the same Independent Women's Forum that opposed the 1994 Violence Against Women Act because, quote, wives instigate violence, including severe violence against husbands more often than husbands do against wives. Is that correct? What year was this? This was in 1994. I was not born yet, so I'm unsure. We've got to do research before we start joining organizations. Oh, because, my God. You know, if we're going to be fighting violence against women and we're joining organizations that incite violence, that is inconsistent with who we say we are. Mr. Chair, I would like to submit for the record Independent Women's Forum statement articulating the reasons why they oppose VAWA. Uh, without objection, so on. Today's hearing is about organized violence, but I'm not sure how the Independent Women's Forum is relevant to today's topic other than it has opposed legislation aiming at preventing violence. This is your first time presenting in a hearing in Congress, correct? At the congressional level, yes. Yeah. So I just want to make sure that I document here that as we're talking about violence, as we're talking about left-wing violence, Violence against women should be number one issue for all of us. But, you know, this is your first time here, but it's not your first time in the political spotlight. And I noticed that you spoke not one, but on two CPAC panels in March, and you just got off the campaign show for a mayor candidate for Kentucky governor, Kelly Kraft, who said that if she were elected governor, we would not have transgenders in our school system. Mr. Chairman, I ask unanimous consent to enter into the record an article from the nation titled Meet the Feminist Doing the Koch Brothers Dirty Work. Without objection, so ordered. Mr. Chairman, I also ask unanimous consent to enter into the record a press release regarding a UCLA School of Law study titled Transgender People Are Over Four Times More Likely Than Cisgender People to Be Victims of Violent Crime. While they are 1%, they are four times more. Without objection, so ordered. The gentlelady's time has expired. Thank I you, Chairman. I yield back. Mr. Strong for his five minutes of uh, questioning. And before he begins, I'd like to remind all members that the witnesses are the guests of the committee and to maintain the good decorum of the committee during questioning of the witnesses. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Erickson, based on your experience in both DHS leadership and local law enforcement, what type of DHS assistance would be helpful to local law enforcement dealing with extreme uh, left-wing violence? Well, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, the uh, DHS's INA is the only statutorily mandated member of the intelligence community that is required to share information with state and local partners, and that's really the crux of where they can be most helpful in sharing articulable, specific, and actionable intelligence to state and local partners so that they can, can actually make use of that intel. Thank you. Have you heard from local law enforcement who have dealt with extreme left-wing violence about uh, assistance that would help um, and be helpful to them to deal with this? Well, again, it really boils down to the nature of the intelligence that's being shared downstream. It has to be uh, tailored to the to the consumer, in this case, the state or local law enforcement agency. So the more specific, the more detailed in nature that the information or intelligence can be, the more that the receiving agency can make use of it. Thank you.
Thank you. Uh, there have been many comments and questions from my colleagues across the aisle focusing on right, uh, right-wing violence and domestic extremism. In your opinion, should the political beliefs of a group inform DHS's decision uh, to take action against violence, or should extremism be addressed uh, consistently? It should be addressed consistently. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Roaz, in your time on the ground reporting on violent <laughs> incidents, um, have you heard from police or other first responders regarding the challenges they face dealing with extreme left-wing violence? Uh, yes, because part of the problem is that a lot of people that show up at these uh, violent events when it comes to the far left, uh, they're not from the local area, so sometimes, I mean, they're not even uh, aware that they're supposed to be on the lookout for these types of people. I mean, here uh, with the recent case in Atlanta, I mean, we had people from Canada and France, right? So, I mean, that, that's like a DHS level uh, Thank you. type thing. Do you have an opinion on what types of resources may be helpful for them? I mean, it's it's kind of similar with with uh, a lot you know a lot has been talked about with gun violence. A lot of it just needs to. I mean, we don't need anything particularly new. We just need laws to be enforced when people are attacking private property or, or individuals. You you arrest them and, and, and you charge them and you go through uh, the court system. I mean, uh, in Portland, uh, what was it? Uh, the local DA office uh, dropped over eighty percent of the cases that were brought to them. So uh, you know, so they were able to go out and continue with that again and again. So it's not that we need anything new. It's just similar with gun, gun control laws. We just need to enforce the ones on the books as opposed to trying to... We do that first before Thank we look at other solutions. Thank you. As someone who is deeply familiar with the groups like Antifa and the threats they present, what can we in Congress uh, be doing to help confront those threats? I, I mean, just, just be consistent in the fact that, again, when you... I mean, I, I, I find it a little disingenuous to hear some of the members on the other side of the aisle um, expressing, you know, grief over recent crime uh, incidents when, uh, last I checked, all the members on this committee uh, voted against the recent House resolution that was against the D.C. crime bill. Thank you, uh, Mr. Rosa. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I yield back to a minute and 45 seconds. So you're, uh, if you're yielding that to me, is that correct? Not back to the chair. Yes, sir. I'm Thank you. I, you. Ms. Downing, let me ask you this. I, as we get at, I know you don't have a whole lot of you're not impressed by the topic, the notion of left-wing violence. You sort of suggested it's a distraction. I was Someone was furnishing me some of your tweets. In, in March, uh, Governor DeSantis had this quote that was, quote, tweeted by you. I don't know what's going to happen. The Manhattan District Attorney is a Soros-funded prosecutor. That's an example of pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the office. And your comment on that was, of course, DeSantis is using the same, exact same anti-Semitic white supremacist rhetoric about the Soros-funded black DA. And then you had another uh, 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 tweet in which you said, white supremacy and the anti-abortion movement have always been inextricably linked. There's just no quiet part anymore among GOP officials. So when you're talking about white supremacist violence, are you referring just sort of to the conservative half of the political spectrum, or are you talking about something different? In other words, you say anti-abortion, uh, views or white supremacist uh, views about uh, Soros DAs or white supremacists. Can you explain what that means? You? Absolutely. Thank you, Chairman, and I'm very glad you asked that question. When I, refuse, when I refer to white supremacist violence, I'm talking specifically about the murders and other violence that we've seen at exponential levels over the last few years, including, again, in 2022, every single extremist murder in this, in this country was committed by a right... How about 2023? Uh, in 2023, well, 
Well, I don't have the statistics for 2023 yet, but you know about Nashville. Uh, but I also know about Allen, Texas, and a variety okay. of other. I, I, and I don't disagree that, that uh, you may have. It's like I've expired the time. We'll come back. Just if we get another opportunity to speak, maybe we'll do more of to. my times up. Uh, or uh, the gentleman's time up, but the gentleman's time having expired, I now recognize uh, Ms. Clark of New York. Five minutes of questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member, uh, and thank you to our panelists today. Mr. Chairman, um, I've heard uh, of oftentimes, particularly when, count, when uh, dealing with the subject matter of um, left-wing organized violence, um, a, a lot of time spent on talking about uh, violence that has caused damage to property, but they seem, but but colleagues seem to be omitting certain examples. So I want to make sure that we uh, correct the record. Here we have an example, uh, and this is the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bomb. That is some serious property damage. As a matter of fact, it's six hundred and fifty-two million dollars worth, in fact. Uh, the Oklahoma City bombing was famously a right-wing attack against the federal government, which may be why my colleagues don't talk about it. Though, to be honest, I care much less about property than I do about human lives. Tragically, the Oklahoma City bombing was also incredibly lethal, killing approximately 168 people and injuring an additional 680, making it the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in United States history. I highlight this to show that right-wing movements in this country have a long history of violence, a long history of being more violent than left-wing movements, but this is nothing new. What is new, though, is the extent to which the Republican Party has enhanced and embraced and encouraged violence, especially under the extreme MAGA cult of Donald Trump. Let's talk about what has happened to the GOP over the past several years. In 2015 and 2016, throughout his campaign for president, Donald Trump encouraged violence against protesters at his rallies, saying protesters should be roughed up and that his supporters should, quote, knock the hell out of them. He said attacks on protesters were, quote, very, very appropriate and something that, quote, we need to do a little bit more of. Republicans had plenty of opportunity and time to recognize what kind of politician Donald Trump was, and they fell in line to support him. After Trump was elected, right-wing violence went from bad to worse. Here. We all know this photo. This is the photo from the Unite the Right rally held in 2017, during which a self-identified white supremacist rammed his car into a group of counter-protesters, killing one person and injuring dozens of others. Some might call that a domestic terrorist attack. In fact, the driver pled guilty to 29 federal hate crimes. And uh, Ms. Batalnik help hold the rally's planners liable for planning a violent attack. And I want to thank you for your hard work and dedication to our nation. At this time, President Trump said in the aftermath of the rally that there were very fine people on both sides of the rally, which encouraged 
white nationalists. Here's a photo of Portland, Oregon in 2020. My Republican colleagues have highlighted property damage resulting from these protests, but to me, the most troubling aspect of these protests was that Trump's Department of Homeland Security confirmed that police without identification were using unmarked vehicles to arrest protesters. Unif- ununified federal police, unidentified federal police were kidnapping protesters in unmarked vehicles. And the Trump administration's actions in responding to these protests encouraged vigilante justice, chaos, and violence, not law and order. While in office, Trump also did the following to encourage violence, labeled the news media, quote, the enemy of the people, encouraged police officers to be tough with people they arrest, encouraged the shooter, the shooting of looters, praised law enforcement for an extrajudicial killing, and told the Proud Boys, a group so vile as to have been labeled a terrorist entity in Canada, to stand back and stand by galvanizing the group according to their own words and helping to instigate planning for January 6th. That brings us to one of the darkest days in American history, the failed insurrection of January 6th. John Leggy's time has expired. Uh, All right. But we have many examples. I recognize of Arizona for his five minutes of questions. Thank you guys for coming today. I appreciate you guys being here on Police Week. Um, Mr. Erickson, um, the lady sitting to your left, Miss Bitolnik, stated on Twitter that white supremacism is the most dangerous terror threat. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? I think again, again, it depends on what context you're looking at. Globally, I would probably disagree with that. Well, just look at her. Just look at what she tweeted. Is the most dangerous terror threat, terrorist threat. What yeah, do you think would, about that? I would probably disagree with that. Why is that, Mr. Erickson? Because the the global view of threats that we face in this country is much larger than the domestic extremism that we're talking about today, and I think that's a completely different um, hearing, a completely different topic to have. But we, you know, I think we tend to get uh, myopia when we start talking about specific things, and we start talking in hyperbole. I, I, that's what I would assume. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. We do that a lot around here. We do that a lot around here. That seems like that's one of the predominant themes in this chamber, which is ironic for some of us that have actually been around the world chasing down real, real terrorists. Uh, Mr. Rojas, what do you think about that? What do you think about that tweet from uh, Miss Bitolnik? Uh, white supremacism is the most dangerous terror threat. What do you think about that? Oh, yes, I would I would agree with Mr. Erickson. If we're talking about, I mean, just I mean, globally, there's a lot of bad people out there that, that want to hurt us. And I would also just say that, like, here uh, in the districts, I would, you know, just walking down the street, um, with homicides being up 7%, along with other crimes being up, I, I, I wouldn't be stabbed or carjacked or shot by, statistically, uh, by a white guy in a red hat screaming, this is MAGA country. Yeah, no, exactly. And we all know that's the case. I mean, it, it's not the reason you can't walk down the street in Chicago and York, Baltimore, etc., because of white supremacy, um, you know, and it's 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 just sad because here's the deal: white supremacy is disgusting. It's disgusting. I look across the aisle at some of my 
some of my brothers and sisters that don't have the same skin color as me. And you know what I see? I see men and women that were created in the image of God, just like I was. You may have a little more melanin in your skin than I do. I could care less. Even though I don't agree with you politically or your political worldview, you guys are my brothers and sisters, and I think it is disgusting. That being said, you guys are playing a very dangerous game by continually overstating continually overstating the threat of white supremacy when there are massive threats. It's not white supremacists that are killing tens of thousands of our children in pill form called fentanyl. It's not white supremacy that is storming over our southern border right now. It's not white supremacy that is trafficking you know, sex slaves into this country at record numbers and on and on and on. But if you guys want to keep beating that drum, you're more than that. That's your right. That's your right. But it's a reason that a lot of Americans don't take you guys seriously. My brothers, my brothers and sisters, it's a reason why America doesn't take you guys seriously because you keep beating that drum. It wasn't white supremacists that flew airliners into the World Trade Centers. And guess what? They're still out there. And, and, and a lot of those folks, because I've actually chased a lot of them overseas, they would love to come into a room like this with an S-vest on and clack it off and kill every single one of us. Black, brown, white, they could care less because you don't have the, you don't share the same religious ideology as them. So we can keep playing we can keep playing these games. But you guys have seen the CBP individuals in here telling you how many individuals on the terror watch list has come over that southern border. And I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters of different colors than me, of the same color as me, if we're gonna get serious about homeland security. We need, we need to stop. We need to be realistic. And yeah, every but I don't know a member on this side or that side that doesn't think legitimate, real white supremacy is disgusting because it is. Any type of supremacy is disgusting. Anytime we devalue anybody or hurt them or harm them with violence because of their skin color is disgusting. Miss Gaines, thank you so much for what you're doing. As a dad to two little girls, it's pretty cool to see young women like yourself that have the courage to stand up to what you face on a daily basis. I've said it many times, you know what the number one ingredient missing in this town is, ma'am? It's not intelligence. You know what it is? What is it? It's courage. I agree. You have it. Thank you. Thank you guys for showing up today. Gentlemen's very consequential time has expired, and I now recognize Mr. Goldman of New York for his five minutes of question. Well, I really appreciate the lecture from my colleague from Arizona. The problem is that he's speaking, of course, anecdotally. So let's look at what our actual executive branch agencies in charge of overseeing white supremacy, overseeing the homeland. Let's look at the homeland threat assessment which says, among DBEs, domestic violent extremists, racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists, specifically white supremacist extremists, will remain the most persistent and lethal threat in the homeland. Confirmed by the director of the FBI. Now I know all of a sudden, you all on that side want to defund the FBI, you want to defund the ATF, but the director of the FBI, a Trump appointee, 
has said that the biggest threat to our homeland is not global terrorism. It is domestic terrorism. And we have these witnesses up here who are trying to tell us, and Mr. Erickson, in his opening statement, let me just point this out. This is the big example that we need to be so worried about because in Atlanta, apparently, there were 23 individuals arrested for crimes ranging from vandalism to assault. We have 650 people who are murdered in mass shootings every single year. Almost two per day mass shootings. Sorry, 600 mass shootings, far more people. And we're supposed to be talking here about vandalism. Give me a break. You can't even say, you can't sit here, Mr. Harrison. You are an employee of the Department of Homeland Security. And I want to get to that in a minute. You can't even acknowledge what your own agency said, that the biggest domestic terror threat is white nationalism, white supremacy. You're trying to get us, uh, gaslight us up here as if Antifa, which Mr. Rosas, apparently the expert now in organized terrorist activity, has overruled the FBI director who says, there's a headline, says Antifa is an ideology, not an organization. No, no, no. Let's not listen to the FBI director. Let's listen to, sorry, what's your, your title? Senior writer at Town Hall who is going to tell us that the FBI director is wrong. And I'd like to yes. introduce, there's no question, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, by unanimous consent an AP article saying the FBI director says Antifa is an ideology, not an organization. Without objection, so on. Can I, can I respond this is, No, you cannot. I didn't ask a question. It's, it's, uh, it's the gentleman's time. He can spend it anyway, Jesus. Mr. Erickson, you went to a meeting at the White House on December 18th, 2020. Did you not? Uh, I, I'm not sure which meeting you're speaking of. Well, there was the same day that a group of Trump advisors, Sidney Powell and Patrick Byrne, met with the president in the Oval Office, and they discussed the prospect of seizing voting machines. Um, did you participate in that meeting? No. Did you hear anything about that plan to seize voting machines? No. Okay. So were you working uh, at the Department of Homeland Security on January 6th? Uh, yes, I was. Because, you know, it's interesting to me. You talk a lot about left-wing uh, extremist activity in your statement, but you actually worked for the Department of Homeland Security on January 6th, and there was no mention of what happened on January 6th in your testimony. And it's fair. That's, that's not the topic of this, this title, uh, of, this, of this hearing. I think that's the problem with the hearing, but that's not your fault. Um, so I, I just want to be clear. You, you have no idea. You, you were not involved in any discussions about seizing voting machines while you were working at the Department of Homeland Security? That is correct. When did you leave the department? Uh, January the 20th, 2021, at noon. Why did you leave then? There was an inauguration that, that occurred at that time. So you, a lot of people are held over, right? No, that's incorrect. Not political appointees. Okay. Everyone was out? Uh, basically everybody, yeah, to best so of my knowledge. Let me, let me ask you something. Would you consider the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers 
to be an organized group. Yes, they were. Or, they were. Their leaders have been convicted of seditious conspiracy at this point, right? To my knowledge, correct. Yeah, based on what they did on January sixth. Correct. Okay. Have any uh, left wing Antifa or any other people been uh, convicted of conspiracy? Gentleman's time has expired. Uh, committee will can you ask the answer the question? Well, actually, your question was outside of your time as well. So, um, that, but so the answer is no. He cannot. We'll proceed to another round so you can get another opportunity to follow that up as you would wish. I, I figured um, as much. We'll proceed to a, a second round of questioning. I recognize, recognize myself for five minutes or what portion that I might consume. Ms. Patalnik, let me go back and give you, because I really didn't give you a full opportunity to answer, and let me just by way of reintroducing the topic, and, and it sort of builds off of what Mr. Crane said to some degree, but here's another another tweet that you did on April 24. When reporters write the story of Tucker Carlson, do not gloss over who he is. He is a raging white supremacist, misogynist, and bigot who has done more to normalize violent extremism and hate over the last few years than nearly anyone else. I think what I'm trying to get at from you, ma'am, and, and you may not wish to draw such a distinction, but isn't there a distinction between the white supremacy that Mr. Crane was talking about, that uh, the Oklahoma City bomber uh, may have been, or I don't know, I guess he was anti-government, whether it was white supremacy, I don't recall, I don't know about him, but uh, there certainly are malignant theories and groups out there, the New Zealand uh, attacker, uh, so forth. I, I'm not an encyclopedia of that, obviously, but there's a lot of that. But you seem in your political advocacy to draw an equivalence between that and sort of right-wing views, conservative views. So abortion uh, and somebody who's pro-life is a white supremacist to you, at least judged from that tweet. If, you're, if you object to Soros-funded prosecutors who have sort of overturned the way prosecutorial activity goes on, you're a white supremacist. If you are Tucker Carlson, uh, you're a white supremacist, misogynist, big, etc. Is there a distinction, or are we talking, is, again, is that just the, the whole, are you referring to the whole right, uh, the whole uh, center-right range of the spectrum, uh, ideological spectrum? Well, there's a distinction between white supremacist views and white supremacist violence, and so when we talk about views, um, those are precisely the views that you just cited, uh, the tweets that you referenced. People like Tucker Carlson, elected officials, uh, pundits, candidates, others who have normalized and mainstreamed the white supremacist views, like the Great Replacement Theory, talking about things like invasion, talking about things like a globalist effort to change our demographics, change our electorate, talking about um, using terms like Soros or the Rothschilds as subs for the Jewish community as part of this Great Replacement Theory, which is deeply anti-Semitic, racist, xenophobic. And so when something like that gets a home on primetime news, it's espoused by elected officials and candidates, what that does is then give license to the violent extremists, like those who marched on Charlottesville or shot at the synagogue in Pittsburgh or at Chabad in Poway or the Walmart in El Paso or the supermarket in Buffalo, okay. who in their manifestos use that very same great replacement theory to justify the murder of Jewish people, black people, immigrants, and so many others. Okay, so just to clarify, let's take anti-abortion, uh, pro-life, someone of pro-life views. Uh, that's equivalent to white supremacy in your judgment? 
there are some in the anti-abortion movement who have trafficked in white supremacist views, who have talked about things like white birth rates and the replacement of the white population and the importance of, quote, banning abortion in order to protect the white population. I'm not saying that everyone who opposes abortion is a white supremacist, but there are absolutely many in the anti-abortion movement who utilize white supremacy to further their goals. I couldn't tell you a percentage, but historically there is a deep interconnection between the white supremacist movement and the anti-abortion movement. There's been a lot written about this as well. You can find exceptions. I'm sure Margaret Sanger was the eugenicist, wasn't she? She could have been. She was, I believe. And so, of course, there are exceptions to every rule, but that doesn't change the fact that there are those who use white supremacy as a means to further an anti-abortion agenda. Mr. Rosas, let me ask you to comment on this sort of a subject matter. I don't even know if I can frame a question. It seems to me troubling. I mean, I'm accustomed. I've been in politics a few years, and so it came to pass that every person who is conservative is referred to as a racist repeatedly. Now the term sort of evolved to white supremacy. It seems to me that that is destructive for the dialogue. Do you not think so? Well, yeah, because it seems someone sneezes the wrong way and they're accused of white supremacy. I mean, the most prominent example that I was personally witness to was the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting. He was immediately labeled as a white supremacist, I believe, one of the members of the squad. I'm not coming to mind, but she said that he was a white supremacist terrorist, completely neglecting the fact that the people that he shot in self-defense were all white. My time has nearly expired, so I'll yield back, and I will recognize the ranking member, Mr. Ivey, for his second round five-minute question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I wanted to do a little housekeeping here. I've got a couple of pieces to offer for the record. I ask unanimous consent to offer these statements from the Brookings Institution, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Without objection, so ordered. I'd ask to offer this joint intelligence bulletin. This is some domestic violence extremists adopt boogaloo and accelerationism concepts to justify or promote violence. Without objection, so ordered. Ms. Spitalnik, I don't know if you're familiar with the boogaloo and accelerationism concepts. They were new to me, but I was wondering if you could expound on those a little bit and talk about how they're connected to these issues. Absolutely. The boogaloo boy movement, which became more prominent in the public discourse in 2020, is a deeply anti-law enforcement, anti-government, right-wing extremist movement, and it specifically came to prominence in summer of 2020 when there were some extremists affiliated with the boogaloo movement who murdered two California law enforcement officers. And this movement specifically believes in the idea of inciting a civil war. Some of them identify as white supremacists, some of them don't, but they are all part of this broader right-wing, anti-government extremist movement. And I think it's indicative of the broader anti-law enforcement sentiment that exists among many right-wing extremists. All you need to do is look at what happened here on January 6th to understand that law enforcement's injured and some who ultimately died from those injuries that day weren't accidental. They weren't collateral damage. They were considered a target by many of the insurrectionists on January 6th. And so it's important to be very clear-eyed about the anti-law enforcement sentiment that exists among many of these right-wing extremists. All right. And then I wanted to – I've got another article here that is called Alleged Leaker Fixated on Guns and Envisioned Race Wars. 
Um, this is an article from the Washington Post dated May 14th. I'd like to offer this for the record as well. Is that okay? The point I want to make on this one, because I, I didn't know this was there, this is about Jack, I think it's pronounced Teixeira, who was the um, individual who worked in national security, um, stole documents, and then leaked them uh, to the public. Uh, and uh, apparently what motivated him was, um, I'll just read a little bit here, Jack Teixeira addressed, in camouflage fatigues, his finger wrapped around the trigger of a semi-automatic rifle, faced the camera, and spoke as though reciting an oath, quote, Jews scam, N-word, rape, and mag dump. Uh, then he used his weapon, aimed at an unseen target, and fired it ten times, emptying the magazine. And the article goes on to talk about uh, his interactions with the group of young men that he shared these documents with preliminarily. He wasn't apparently planning to release them uh, to the public, but he, uh, he did release them to these friends, and they got out eventually. Uh, and then it, you know, a little later in the article, it talks about um, his comments about the Black, Black, Live, Black Lives Matter protests. He told his friends he saw a storm gathering. One friend said he was afraid they would target white people. He had told me quite a few times he thought they need to be prepared for a revolution. Um, so I, I guess there's a, a commonality here. It actually traces all the way back to McVeigh and beyond about sort of the, an apocalyptic vision about what's going to happen with the United States, the Second Civil War and the like. Um, that, that sort of leads to these kinds of um, dangerous responses. To share, I didn't actually kill anybody, but many of the people that we're talking about today did, uh, and it seems to me that that is a, an important line of distinction to draw when we're trying to separate out these issues. But at the end of the day, and I, I think, you know, as I said in our last hearing, Mr. Chairman, I think there's a good hearing in here somewhere with respect to how the Homeland Security Committee can address these types of problems move forward. Mr. Erickson, you raised concerns about the government issuing information in responding to uh, false information, misinformation, that's fine. I, you know, I have a different view on some of these, but I think there is a point where, especially if it's drawing a distinction about who's politically right or making those kinds of evaluations, I do think there are definitely scenarios where the government uh, can and should be issuing information, especially where it creates a, I'll say, a clear present, pleasant, uh, present danger with respect to the community. Um, and I do share your view that it should be addressed consistently. And by that I mean violence, especially murder, uh, I think should be, you know, prosecuted as such. Uh, I think, you know, vandalism and other types of crimes should be prosecuted as such. I think the point of the testimony I've heard so far today and the data we presented was there's a clear distinction between the right-wing extremism violence, which has been, in many instances, um, results in homicides, sometimes targeting police, and I think what you all have said with respect to Antifa and the like, uh, that it tends to be uh, vandalism, theft, uh, I think there's some arson and property crimes, but different. But at the end of the day, I think we need to address those. So I, with that, I yield back. I thank the ranking member for uh, for the uh, ecumenical sort of thing. I appreciate that. <laughs> I the, the gentleman's style is uh, one that I appreciate. And with that, uh, I yield for five. Well, I, I recognize uh, Ms. Green for five minutes questioning second round. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, just while we've been sitting in this, this committee room, having this hearing,
hearing today uh, about left-wing extremism and violence. Um, literally, as we were being gaveled in, we experienced some left-wing extremism of our own on the second floor of this building while we've been in here. The Center for Popular Democracy invaded our office building this afternoon to push their extreme agenda on everything from climate to the debt ceiling. Approximately a dozen were arrested while we were sitting in this hearing room. Um, thankfully, my staff brought over uh, pictures to share with you all. This happened right here in the, the rotunda um, of the Canaan building while we were sitting here in this hearing, having this having this hearing on left-wing extremism. I mean, you kind of can't even make this up. Uh, but George Soros funded it. It's the Open Society that funds this group. Um, here they are being arrested by Capitol Police. Uh, we really appreciate their work. Um, here they are being loaded into the vans, thankfully. And um, uh, here's some of their signs that they left uh, here in the in the Cannon Building. I don't know if we call that an insurrection, left-wing left -wing extremism, uh, violence. I'm not sure what we call it. But I would like to to remind, um, or I'd like to remind everyone uh, that while we're talking about white supremacy, uh, Miss Spittleneck, you were talking about white supremacy. Oh, I apologize, Spitalnik. Miss Spitalnik, while you were talking about white supremacist and abortion. I totally agree with you. There's a lot of white supremacists in the abortion movement um, and abortionists because they have murdered over 20 million black babies in America since Roe versus Wade in 1973. That's on average 900 black babies are aborted. They're ripped apart inside their mother's wombs. So I, you know, I would agree with you that that could be labeled white supremacy, or we could just label it murder, and it should never be happening. So if you want to talk about white supremacy and the abortion movement, you should really analyze that in your human rights groups that you run as you collect donations from people with your nonprofit, because I think that is something extremely important to talk about: is the right for those black babies to have lives as American citizens, the right for them to be born, the right for them to be given a chance to live as free Americans instead of murder. You think this is funny, Ms. Potomac? Is this funny to you? Is babies being murdered in the womb funny to you? Because you're smirking and laughing at me right now. What's not funny are the black people and Hispanic people and Jewish people and Muslim people who have been murdered in synagogue, in church, in supermarkets, in mosques, by white supremacists. Are you aware that, that all colored people are murdered? Uh, that is that is a fact, that every single color person has been murdered. That That's not unusual. It's not just that people of color are murdered. White people are murdered too. Murder is not just for minorities. I, that may be a shock to you because you seem to dive deeply into all kinds of misinformation and, and seem to be uninformed yourself. But if you're going to talk about white supremacy and abortion, you need to study very hard about who the targets are. And it's not just black women, and it's not just black babies, it's Hispanics as well. And I think that's important for you to understand. 
And if you apparently care about human rights and you care about studying extremism, let's have a little talk about extremism, shall we? I think that's important because that's what this hearing is all about. I'd like to inform you, or maybe you don't know, maybe you do know, I doubt it, you mostly care about white supremacists and white wing extremism. But there's quite a pattern of left-wing violent protests on college campuses today. Uh, Miss Gaines here was a victim of it. Do you support what they did to Miss Gaines? These trans terrorists chasing her into a room? Do you support their movement? I am absolutely sorry that Miss Gaines felt threatened and unsafe while she was on a college campus, and that's not acceptable. But again, the statistics tell us that when it comes to politically motivated violence in 2022, every single murder was committed by a right-wing extremist. Every single murder in America was committed by a right-wing extremist? Every single politically motivated murder was committed by a right-wing extremist. Are you sure about that? I am what a, are, you, are you aware that the uh, Tennessee shooter just recently identified as a man and she was a biological woman? Was she a right-wing extremist as well? No, ladies, time has expired. I'll allow the witness to answer the question. So that was a shooting that happened in 2023. There is no evidence as to what ideology motivated that shooting. And what we do know is that cisgender males are responsible for the vast majority of mass shootings in this country. I'm sorry, I don't know what a cisgender male is. There's only two, two genders. It's male and female. That would be that. So no one knows what a cisgender male is. It's a made-up, made-up. Unfortunately, uh, the anti-trans invasion of Georgia yields back. I recognize Mr. Strong for his five-minute question. Um, thank you, Mr. Ezell, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Erickson, as a, as a sheriff and a police chief and a law enforcement professional, uh, I believe this day in history that the, that the police are better trained, better equipped, and better uh, prepared than any time in our history. Uh, the attack on law enforcement is nothing new. We've been attacked many times over the years that we've policed this great country. What is new is the lack of support uh, that has come to us from the federal government, uh, namely this Biden administration. Uh, law enforcement officers work many long hours uh, to protect their communities, and it's been very disheartening to see what has come out of Washington over the last several years and the major cities in this country. This should be concerning to all Americans. Uh, could you speak uh, some of these effects, how they've affected the ability to recruit and retain police officers. Yeah, absolutely, and everything you've said is correct. Um, you know, I've said it before, I think we're facing a generational crisis in recruiting and retention, and, and not just major cities in this country, but communities of all sizes are having a more and more difficult time getting qualified young folks to, to enter into the profession. And there's a lot of reasons why, no small measure, it has to do with the uh, the negative atmosphere that's been born out of this more modern um, uh, incarnation of the anti-police movement. There have been anti-police movements over over uh, decades and decades, but the modern movement began probably seven, eight years ago, and it's had a debilitating effect on recruiting and retention, and you, you can understand why. Uh, but, but compounding that, you have the problem with a lack of support throughout the arc of the criminal justice system. Law enforcement is only the first part of that justice system. And so you can arrest all the people you want. If prosecutors aren't going to charge them and they're going to be let out, that has a demoralizing effect on the profession. 
And again, it's, a, it's, a, it's, self, it's sort of a self-fulfilling cycle where it keeps feeding into it, itself. So it's a huge problem. I think we need to change the tone and the rhetoric about how we describe law enforcement across the board. I think we need to universally support and uphold the work that they're doing and make sure that they're funded and resourced appropriately. Thank you very much. And we can all agree on, on uh, that, you know, our law enforcement needs continually updated training. You know, this is a very complex time that, that we're living in. You know, law enforcement is being required to do more than we've ever been uh, asked in my 42-year history as a law enforcement officer. And I think that, that that's something that we've got to come together on is that, you know, the police officers get up every day and go to work to serve their community. They work long hours. They get tired just like everybody else. But, you know, during some of these uh, protests and some of the things that we've seen around the country, uh, you know, police are baited. They're pushed. Uh, and sometimes it's not very easy to respond in, in what we people would think is a normal manner if you feel your life is threatened. So, you know, what I, I just want everybody to understand is that law enforcement in this country is here for everybody in this room. And what I will say about some of these extremists on both sides, they need to be put in prison. They need to be left in prison so they won't be out here terrorizing the, the good citizens, the taxpayers, and the hardworking people of this community. And I think we can come to some sort of understanding on both sides about enforcing the law, charging people, giving them a trial, getting it done so that we can better protect society. And again, Ms. Gaines, I'd like to, to commend you for your bravery. And I want to thank all the witnesses for being here today. And, uh, you know, let's figure this thing out. Let's get something done. And, uh, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. What if the gentleman would yield to me individually before yielding back the balance the remaining minutes? Yes, I, I do. I yield back to that, Chair. Uh, thank you, sir. And uh, first, first thing, I, without objection, uh, Ms. Green will submit for the record the four photographs of the events she uh, indicated were recorded earlier today in this building with the arrests of uh, people who were intruders or protesters or whatever. Uh, Ms. Gaines, I, the 30 seconds we've got left, I, I think I'll focus on you. We, we see sort of the nature of the dialogue in politics that we're having right here. And I guess I would say, again, I would join the others in commending you for your courage and ask you if you have any closing thoughts uh, in case I don't get another chance to speak to what you think about the ability to, to have a dialogue when we're calling each other, you know, the most horrific names and, uh, and how we get to the right result. Yeah, this is tricky because I do think that the majority of people in this room where agree on the same things. We all want everyone to be safe. We all want this sense of fairness. And so it's kind of discouraging for me being 23. Um, I always kind of joke and say I was naive before the Leah Thomas stuff specifically, and I, I wish I could go back to being naive, of just how this system really works. Um, it is pretty heartbreaking, and, and that's not to one side or the other. Just seeing the kind of um, going for the throats, and I understand to a degree, but I think we all want the same thing, so I feel like there should be, we should be able to create solutions that, that I know we can't appease everyone, that's very evident, that, but appease the majority of people and keep the majority of people safe. Thank you, Mayor, for that. And with that, I uh, recognize for his second round of five minutes of questioning, Mr. Strong. Ms. Gaines, as a father, I can't imagine what happened that day in that dressing room. Your day started with a man 
was average at best in the sport of swimming, then claiming to be a woman or a transgender, changing in front of you and your teammates, then your day ended with a man that tied you for the fastest time being awarded first place by the NCAA. As a young lady, you were failed at a bunch of different levels. It is unbelievable what you've been through, and I commend you and your family for being here today. I yield the rest of my time to Ms. Green from Georgia. Thank you, Mr. Strong. I'd like to continue back with uh, talking about left-wing extremism. I think it's very important, this issue. Uh, would like to remind everyone here, in the summer of 2020, the protests and violence in major cities all over the country were so intense, it caused over $2 billion in damage in America. Um, this was nationwide in cities all over our country. Uh, there, the far-left groups that occupied Portland were there for over 100 days, causing over $2 million in damage to the federal buildings and local businesses. Uh, Seattle protesters claimed several blocks, literally took it over um, in a neighborhood that they called Capitol Hill Autonomous Zones, or CHAZ, um, which is something that no one can comprehend how an, an Antifa group and left-wing extremist group can come in and literally take over city blocks. Um, and I, I just wonder, uh, Ms. Spital, Spitalnik, I'm sorry, um, as Senior Advisor on Extremism at Human Rights First, which is a nonpartisan organization, nonpartisan, um, have you studied Antifa? No, I have not studied Antifa, but I am aware of the research that those who do study extremism across the spectrum has done that tells us that while, yes, on the left, there is oftentimes, um, to the extent left-wing violence exists, it tends to be focused on property damage and other um, acts along those lines, whereas on the right, for the most part, the violence tends to be uh, manifesting in the sort of deadly mass acts of violence that we've been talking about here today. Oh, so, no, first no, and foremost, I reclaim my time. I reclaim my time. Thank you. Uh, you're with a nonpartisan organization, a nonprofit, which means you raise money uh, in a nonpartisan fashion for extremism and human rights. Um, and, and so you don't consider. You don't consider property damage. For the American people, by the way, it's I'm a business owner. It's really hard to run a business, especially if the entire neighborhoods and area gets set on fire night after night. The police officers are attacked. They're attacking federal courthouses and making the entire community literally unlivable. It's hard to have customers come in your store, especially when you own a store or maybe you have a Wendy's franchise that gets burned to the ground, so you don't you don't consider that worth studying the the property damage and, and all of the violence that happens to the American people. I, I would think that you consider that something worth studying and, and caring about, especially in a nonpartisan organization. And absolutely, there is left wing violence that does exist in certain ways. But the don't point lie. that I am making is that we cannot draw false equivalencies between property damage and the death of people by mass shooters who are targeting them based on their race, their religion, or other 
characteristics. Well, what about their job or their profession, like being a police officer? We could talk about the city of Atlanta. That's the state I'm from. I'm from Georgia, as a matter of fact. And there's an uh, Atlanta Public Safety Training Center uh, in Atlanta. The Atlanta City Council has proposed a $90 million. That's taxpayer-funded, by the way. $90 million for the, from the taxpayers to, for the protection and the safety of the city of Atlanta. Well, this Antifa group has come in there and decided to take it over because they call it Cop City. You want to talk about human lives? Well, it seems to be that being a police officer is a target for Antifa because they actually murdered someone there. They actually murdered a police. Oh, you don't know. That's right, because you don't study left-wing extremism from your nonpartisan uh, so-called nonprofit. But let me tell you about it. There was a, a, a 26-year-old activist, Manuel uh, Tehran, shot and killed Georgia State Patrol trooper there. That was this year, you're right. Not last year, it was this year. So left-wing extremism is definitely on the rise, and murder is a big part of it. I yield back. Thank you. Jolly yields back, and I recognize Mr. Crane for his five minutes of question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Rojas, you spent a lot of time embedded on the ground in protests and riots throughout the unrest in 2020, including in Portland, Seattle, Kenosha, while most people in the protest march come with the intent of exercising their First Amendment rights, it seems that there is often a faction intent on taking advantage of the protests to engage in violence. Could you please describe some of the tactics you have seen left-wing groups employ in preparing to confront police? So the, the common thing is to uh, first initially uh, arrive and organize it in a peaceful way. That We saw that in Portland. I saw that. They would organize themselves in the park right across from the federal courthouse, but then as time would go on, more and more people would start to try to tear down, they have the fence up by them, they would try to tear down the fence, they would try to start fires, they would try to breach uh, the perimeter. And so um, I know uh, Councilman Clark was was bemoaning the, the response to it, but it, for, for what I saw, uh, the, the federal officers that were protecting the federal courthouse, they only came out after the rioters attack the courthouse first on, on, on those nights. Did you see anything to indicate that the violence in some of these situations was planned in advance? Well, absolutely. I mean, they, they are, again, when we're talking about Portland, they would have people organized to do specific jobs. Uh, sometimes, uh, again, there would be the arsonists. Uh, they would have people with umbrellas to try to counteract the 40 millimeter uh, uh, less than lethal projectiles. They would have, because they were using tear gas, uh, the, the officers, the, they would have people with um, uh, leaf blowers to try to uh, blow away the, and direct the, the gas back. So they, they basically had, as you know, basically an MOS, military occupational specialty, uh, in, in during, during those times. How did the members of Antifa communicate with each other to coordinate and plan their attacks? Uh, again, a lot of it's through social media. A lot of it's through just regular phones uh, and, and, and encrypted chats. Uh, one of the reasons why I personally do not uh, live stream any of the riots that I that I covered is because they actually even have they kind of like a cyber intel uh, unit because they would watch the live streams and if and if somebody wasn't and if there was a live streamer who wasn't aligned with them or who, who was willing to actually show their their violent acts they would tell the people on the ground that, hey, this person is here, and they would be able to pinpoint where they are based on 
based on the live streams, so uh, it, it is pretty much that sophisticated. Can you uh, talk to us real quick about some of the weapons and tools that you've seen used, uh, also tactics employed by these Antifa groups? So outside of Molotov cocktails, I mean, again, in Portland, there was uh, there was an actual IED thrown, at not, just a, not just a large-grade firework, but an actual improvised explosive device thrown at the, at the federal courthouse. Uh, they would use crowbars, hammers, metal pikes, uh, basically anything. Um, sometimes they would be armed with handguns. Uh, I saw that in Kenosha. Um, and so it, it, it's a wide range of weaponry. And the reason why they like blunt instruments is because you often see them with backpacks. So uh, they would, they're able to quickly uh, take the hammer or crowbar out of the backpack, do damage or attack somebody with it, and then put it back. And, and kind of, since they're all worn black, uh, then kind of blend in back in the crowd, so it's harder to, if, if they were caught on video, it's harder to pinpoint who, who, who was. Thank you. Mr. Erickson, is it true that you were a law enforcement officer for a while? Yes. Does it bother you as somebody who wants to protect all people to see law enforcement and protection become bipartisan and polarized? Or partisan, I should say. Well, yeah, law enforcement officers are, you know, I never went to a call and asked somebody what their political registration was before I helped them. You know, they, they're there to do their job. They're trying to keep communities safe. Uh, they don't want to get sucked into the partisan debate. They just want to do their jobs. Yeah, when uh, when you were serving as a law enforcement officer, um, was that before or after the defund the police movement? That was before. That was before. Correct. What you, would you think about that whole defund the police movement? I mean, I thought it was asinine. It made no sense. Uh, politically, it made no sense. Logically, it made no sense. I wasn't surprised, but uh, I didn't really make much of it, um, other than disappointment that it actually manifested in, in the cutting of some budgets. I thought people had more common sense than to go down that path. Yeah. Common sense isn't so common, is it? It depends. Thank you. I yield back my time. Gentlemen, yield back. Uh, we'll proceed to, for those interested, we'll proceed to a, uh, a third round of questioning. Uh, I will pass, though, to the ranking member, uh, Mr. Ivey, for five minutes. Okay. There were some comments about law enforcement, um, and I, I guess the theory is that Police departments across the country are having trouble hiring uh, because of defund arguments and you know difficult environment and the like. We had another hearing in the same hearing room this morning, um, and the chief uh, from I, th I believe it was Odessa, Texas, came in. And consistent with what other members of law enforcement have said, um, the primary focus of what he talked about was um, pay. Uh, his point was, he, you know, they're, uh, in the area where he lives, they have oil and gas fields. Um, you can start working for oil and gas, and a young individual can work his way up to making $100,000 uh, in a relatively short period of time. Whereas at the police department, A, he said that you have to be uh, 21 to be hired. And so a lot of these young men take jobs right after high school. And so by the time they're old enough to be hired by the police, it's too late. They've already gone into other fields, and they pay a lot less than these young men can, enter, can earn in the uh, law enforcement profession. So you also noted that um, 
when somebody asked about defund the police, he pointed out that that was never an issue where he is. This is unrealistic. He said they had strong support from the community and the prosecutors. So, you know, I do want to be careful about sort of trying to make this a unanimous point across the country. There are lots of places in the country where people are having trouble hiring police for the same reason people are having trouble hiring in other professions. Sometimes it's the money. Sometimes it's the nature of the work. But it's not because, not universally at least for sure, of some kind of defund the police movement. I did want to point out, too, and we've talked a lot about defund the police, but, you know, my Republican colleagues are talking a lot about defunding the police. But, you know, they're the ones sponsoring legislation to not just defund the ATF but eliminate it entirely. Not just to defund the FBI but to eliminate it entirely. And the Republican frontrunner for president right now has called for the entire elimination of the Department of Justice and the FBI. So, your former boss, I guess, Mr. Erickson. So, you know, to the extent we really want to engage in those conversations, I think we should be careful about it. You know, people, again, on the panel from this morning, the panel this morning was about reducing crime at the state and local level. And they, all across the board, all three of the law enforcement officials said, yeah, we have good partnerships with the feds. We work with them closely. The gentleman from Odessa, Texas, pointed out that he had a great working relationship with the assistant U.S. attorney. And I think he said the Western District of Texas. Now, this is the Biden Department of Justice. But it doesn't matter because at that level of what they're doing, they're able to work their cases together and fight crime in a coordinated way. They also noted that it was helpful to them for the federal funding that they're getting. I think they were talking about burn grants primarily. But, you know, there's $350 million that's been made available in many instances to smaller police departments like the ones in my jurisdiction. I have a county police department that has like 1,000 officers, but we have multiple municipal police departments that have like 10 officers on the department. And it's very valuable to have that kind of federal funding to help them with getting equipment and also, you know, hiring. Some of them need bonuses to attract law enforcement and the like. So I think it's important for us to make sure that we're not missing the big point on these issues. And with respect to, again, this topic, and Ms. Gaines, I think your testimony, I think there's definitely a hearing waiting for you. I sit on the Judiciary Committee. That's probably where it should be because the issues you're raising tend to be addressed by those types of laws that are following the jurisdiction of that committee. So maybe you'll pass that along to Mr. Jordan and you'll have a hearing to that effect. But to the other issues, I think it's pretty clear that, yes, it's clear that we have violent extremism in the United States. There are ideological roots for that that we need to address. And I think that to some extent it's on the left. It's sort of a different set of roots to those problems. But clearly the ones on the right, we can tell what those issues are. And, you know, Ms. Vitalik has talked about those, and I think we need to try and address those quickly so we don't have other big major shootings or we try and address them as quickly as we can. And I yield back. I thank the ranking member for yielding back. And I'll recognize myself for five minutes and use it as the opportunity to say I think the original 
event that inspired this hearing on left-wing violence was the Antifa uh, attack on the police facility in development in, in Atlanta. And um, because for me it was so out of the, uh, it was so out of nowhere kind of. I mean, we've seen, we've gotten accustomed to seeing this in certain parts of the country, but it's showing up other other places. Maybe it's been my own uh, a narrow horizon. I've seen that it's been everywhere. But I, I noticed Mr. Goldman said earlier when he was here that it, it was uh, uh, that the, the, that I think he, he sort of denigrated what happened down there, saying you know, charges range from something to assault. I don't remember what he said, but actually I turned around to staff because what I remembered and what staff then confirmed is that all 23 people arrested there were charged with domestic terrorism. They got domestic terror charges. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. That either means somebody's overcharging. Or I think more likely, given the stuff that we saw, Molotov, Molotov cocktails and stuff like that, it's this is this is crazy stuff. And and again, I don't think, and I appreciate Mr. Ivy uh, some of the comments you've had, uh, but the tenor, of course, a number of comments on the other side, people outraged that we're looking at this, and I can always question about whether it's worth a hearing or not. But it doesn't denigrate the idea, Mr. Crane, to your point, that that there is uh, this cr- crazy. Uh, uh, white supremacy uh, sort of motivated violence out there that has cost lives. I don't denigrate that in any respect. Um, I, I do think it's problematic, with all due respect to Ms. Potomac, to, to suggest that all, all conservatives are white supremacists. Hence, they're inspiring that. I mean, by the same token, everybody who is an, uh, you know, embraces trans ideology sponsored the woman who, or the person who, who in Nashville killed a bunch of people. I, I don't think, in fact, this whole concept we've heard talked about in various hearings of, of uh, uh, stochastic terrorism. You heard that phrase? Stochastic terrorism, the idea that if you engage in very normal spectrum uh, 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 debate, uh, advocacy for views, you're somehow inspiring some person down the road to engage in, in extremist violence. I think that's that's dangerous to the conception of our free speech and the, and the way we... But let me, let me go to you, Mr. Erickson, for just a second here. Um, it seems to me the, this fundamental pillar of our, of our democracy is the rule of law. Um, and, if, and yet I see, I, you know, I think about... It's funny, uh, the Trump administration has always taken the task. In fact, Trump himself is called a white supremacist by my colleagues on the other side. And yet they also say it was Trump's Department of Homeland Security that identified... Right-wing or white supremacist extremists is the, and I always get, got to formulate this right, as you say, it's the most most lethal domestic terror threat to the homeland. I think is how they put it. Um, but but that, that doesn't ever get credited for some reason. But what do you see the long-term consequences if we can't even have a hearing to examine this type of violence and that, uh, so that the country will be aware of, of the challenges we face? Well, I mean, I think the long-term implications of a lack of candor in this topic could be very disastrous. I mean, our democracy is predicated upon us being able to discuss difficult issues and do so in a respectful way, acknowledging that there are two sides to a coin or acknowledging that the spectrum of an issue can be broad and wide. And a lot of what I saw today was, you know, uh, folks mentioning one side of the violence. I think the point of this uh, hearing, and I applaud the majority for doing this, is that we have to acknowledge all sides. And for the past couple of years, there's been scant conversation about left-wing violence coming, at least from the federal government. 
left-wing violence is not just vandalism. I was in Portland uh, every single night, as Mr. Rosas alluded to. Um, these domestic terrorists were not just destroying the Hatfield Federal Courthouse, but our federal law enforcement who were in the courthouse were literally, they literally attempted to light them on fire and to burn the building down with them in it. It was only at that time that they would leave the building to try and apprehend the people that were doing that. So it's not vandalism. This goes far beyond that. So to simply say, well, 22 people died in 2022, and it was all because of right-wing extremism, and to say that means that left-wing extremism is not a problem, that's the problem. That's the problem here that we're facing right now in Congress. We have to talk about this holistically. Would the gentleman yield for a question? Uh, I've only got 10 seconds, but yes. Quick question. To him? To you. Uh, this is your point about the uh, domestic terrorism charges in Georgia. They were made under state law. There's no federal statute that is domestic terrorism. Would you consider working with me to put together a domestic terrorism bill that we could pass that would apply at the federal level on both sides uh, and uh, would focus primarily on the more se serious crimes? Minor stuff could be left at the state level. Yeah. I, 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 Mr. Hyde, I would be willing to work with you on anything. I think you're a very, very great gentleman. And, uh, and I think that topic is worth consideration. One concern I have, when that, and I think one reason we haven't gotten there, is because is for the phenomenon that I see here which is to the extent domestic, the phrase the, the, the phrase terrorism or the word terrorism is used as a tool to smear or paint half of the polity, half of the American people, as though they're somehow complicit in it, is problematic. But to the, to, to the, to the extent we need tools to get at what actually constitutes ter terrorism, to stop it, that, that's something that we ought to be able to well, just along those lines, I mean, my understanding of this is that part of the definition would be statutory, yeah. and that usually what happens is there's deference given to whether it's the State Department or another department uh, to make a determination as to which groups would fall into that category. But I'd be willing to work with you. Why you say it might be in another department? We can find a way to get it here. Gentlemen, uh, I, I, I yield. Uh, my time's expired, and then so I think the right thing for me to do now is uh, recognize Mrs. Green of Georgia for her five. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. Um, I, I agree with the committee and I agree with our witnesses that extremism and, and violence and political murder and, and all of this is absolutely wrong, no matter what side of the aisle it's on. But I think it's important to inform uh, one of our witnesses today, Ms. Batalnik, that you're, you need to study your facts more, especially since your group is nonpartisan and your paycheck, I'm sure, is funded by people that donated to your group that is, uh, you know, again, the, as you're the senior advisor on extremism at Human Rights First. Actually, as you can, there were 25 Americans killed at the hands of uh, Black Lives Matter and Antifa, and we can call them domestic terrorists. I think that's an appropriate word. Um, Antifa was certainly charged with domestic terrorism charges in Georgia, my home state. And rightfully so. Um, and then one of the victims, can we go back to that? Thank you. Is uh, Captain David Dorn. Captain David Dorn. And I don't think, I don't, I, I, unless Antifa is a white supremacist group. Mr. Rosas, you've done a lot of uh, studying on Antifa. Are they a white supremacist group, Antifa, BLM? Uh, not in the traditional sense because, and 
I say that because they, the, a lot of the people that I'm able to see, they are white, um, and when they do commit acts of vandalism, or they attack minorities, so I mean, that could be, but I, I guess with what you're trying to ask, not in traditional sense. Not in a traditional sense, but most of them are white, and they are attacking minorities. And the neighborhoods and businesses, they terrorize them, yes. Right, minority neighborhoods and businesses, which is, is should be talked about more. I mean, Black Lives Matter raised millions and millions of dollars, and then there, there are protests that turned into violent uh, riots causing property damage. But to your knowledge, has BLM ever paid any money to rebuild those minority communities that they destroyed? Not to my knowledge. Thank you. Mr. Erickson, do you know of any uh, any effort of BLM or Antifa to spend the money that they have to rebuild these communities? I'm not familiar with any of those. Thank you. Uh, I, think, I think as we're talking about left-wing extremism that continues today, it happened today in this building while we're having this hearing, which is unreal, I think it's important to remember the headlines um, that, that seem to be forgotten because the major focus of Democrats here in this city, uh, the major focus from many people on the left is one day in history, which is January 6th. But I think it's really important to remember all of the violence and arrest and, and unbelievable threat to human lives. Ms. Patalnik, remember you care about human lives. These headlines right here talk about human lives. Uh, human lives are important to you. Is that correct, Ms. Spitalnik? That is correct, which is, again, why we need to be clear-eyed about the threat while not ignoring the fact that left-wing violence exists, as you point out, but recognizing that when it comes to politically motivated violence, all of the statistics, including from Trump's own Department of Homeland Security, says white supremacist and other far-right extremism is the most persistent and lethal threat. Right, so what we established today is white supremacy and abortion is the most lethal threat to black babies, okay. with over 20 million being murdered in the womb. Nine thousand a day. I, I reclaim my time, Ms. Spitalnik. I reclaim my time. Thank you. But what you can see here is 47 arrested, 59 officers injured, five officers hurt, violent BLM protests in New York, leaving two New York police cops injured, 11 arrested, Portland officers injured. Um, New York Police Department chief injured while making arrests, more than 700 officers injured, and let's go to one more identity that seems to be be targeted more than any other identity in past times, which is now a woman, like Riley Gaines, the female athlete, any, any woman fighting for her right to have privacy to change her clothes without a man in there, with, to have the privacy to compete. Thank God Riley Gaines was not murdered when she went to that college campus that day. So, Ms. Potomac, I would ask with your nonpartisan nonprofit that you run and you care about human rights, I would hope that you care about Riley Gaines and other women because they're the new target of political violence. Thank you. I yield my time. Gentlemen, yield back. I recognize Mr. Strong for five minutes. Mr. Chairman, uh, I have no further questions. I've stated at this committee hearing out of respect of what Ms. Gaines has gone through in an effort to fairly compete in sports as a female athlete. Gentlemen, yields back. Uh, at this time, I recognize Mr. Crane for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
Mr. Rojas, I noticed that uh, you wanted to respond to something that uh, one of my colleagues said about you a little while ago. I'd like to give you time to go ahead and do that. Yeah, thank you, Congressman. Well, I, I think it's funny to be to be lectured by an heir to the Levi Strauss uh, Corporation, and, and honestly, that's probably why he uh, doesn't consider property damage to be that big of a deal, because not only does he have that, but he also has uh, what some would describe an impossibly good stock portfolio. Um, but what I can tell you is that in these riots that happened uh, three years ago, they, uh, yes, big corporations uh, did suffer damage and looting, such as Target, that, that would happen in Minneapolis. Uh, but a lot of the businesses, they were small businesses. They didn't come from multi-million dollar uh, families or, or corporations. And so uh, the, the fact that they had to uh, not only deal with the completely unnecessary uh, COVID restrictions that were happening during that time, so the, their, their bottom line was already being hit by that. But then when you add on now having to replace lost inventory or to repair damage, or in some cases be completely, uh, you know, lose your entire business uh, that happened to a family that I know in Kenosha. Um, when, when you take, I mean, you're taking away people's ability to, to live, to livelihood. A friend of mine said that uh, taking away someone's job like that is just a, ha a baby step away from murdering them because how else are they support to, supposed to support themselves? So I, I, I think uh, it was absolutely disgraceful for uh, Congressman Goldman to try to just denigrate my, my title because it's not just a title. I, I've earned it because I was there chewing the dirt uh, in these dangerous situations. I didn't see him in any of those places. Uh, I was there in New York covering uh, uh, New York City, covering uh, some pretty violent protests there. And I'm also not just a, a writer, but I've served honorably in the Marine Corps Reserves. Uh, and I was very proud of that. And so uh, that's just typical elitist uh, thinking, and uh, that's why a lot of people hate Washington, D.C., and honestly, I, I don't blame Thank you for your service, Mr. Rojas. We appreciate it. I yield back. Gentlemen, yield back. And I now recognize Mr. Fluker for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate the ability to wave on to this committee and uh, participate in this. This morning in the same committee room, we held a hearing our appreciation for law enforcement during National Police Week. It was very disturbing to hear colleagues on the other side of the aisle saying that uh, this was not going to be something that was politicized and immediately hearing them launch into uh, attacks on um, you know one, one type of violence but, uh, but not on all types of violence. I'd like to submit for the record, Mr. Chairman, uh, a document here which goes into the discussions um, of colleagues on the other side of the aisle, including Representative Maxine Waters, who said let's make sure we show up where, wherever we have to show up and if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant in a department store at a gasoline station you get out and you create a crowd and you push back on them and you tell them they're not welcome here anymore um, another state senator from Missouri saying I hope Trump is assassinated and on and on and on uh, but these are elected officials I'd like to submit this for the record without objection so forth. Um, let me start by saying that uh, any type of violence uh, is, um, is absolutely horrible should not uh, go one second without people on both sides of this dais condemning it. does not matter what the reason is. It doesn't matter uh, who the person is. It should be condemned. And unfortunately, we're here in this hearing because that has not happened. Uh, we, say, we have seen firsthand the devastation that uh, the violence has caused in this country on any side of the political spectrum, and it's not okay. Uh, but specifically have been disappointed to not see um, left-wing extremist groups who have not been condemned by 
my colleagues on the other side of the aisle in some cases. And instead of prosecuting or holding violent criminals and, and individuals accountable, some with, within our society have made excuses for this. And it's unacceptable. Uh, and I want to say um, to our witnesses, thank you for being here, um, for standing up and, and showing us your, your courage. Uh, I'd like to focus a couple of questions um, and, and ask Ms. Gaines to respond, you know, the, the evening that uh, the attack on you happened. I, I mean, I think the whole country thought, how is this possible? You've had the courage to speak out on an issue that is very personal to you. Um, I have three daughters, and to think about the issue that you're talking about and standing up for what you believe in, the freedom of speech, the First Amendment protects your ability to do that. Um, and yet, San Francisco State University President Lynn Mahoney wrote a letter sympathizing those who attacked you. And I, I can't imagine how that has made you feel. I know how it's made me feel. No, it's, um, we've used the term domestic terrorists a lot in, in this hearing, and that's co constantly something I get called um, by these same left-leaning protesters who, um, again, for simply saying women deserve fairness, we deserve safety, and we deserve privacy, and we deserve respect. And I get called a domestic terrorist all the time. Um, so this term for me, maybe I have a, a skewed perception of, of what it means. Um, but yes, it, it's been, um, I don't know, again, it's just disheartening to be in the position I'm in, feeling like I'm asking for the bare minimum, um, feeling like I'm asking for something that is so simple that we all are entitled to, yet I'm being, you know, held hostage. And there's one more piece I wanted to mention about this night that um, I haven't really touched on, I briefly touched on it in my testimony, but... The verbiage outside the room, when I'm still giving my speech, these protesters, um, the video doesn't do a good job showing of just how many were in these stairways. I mean, it was hundreds of people. But these people, they were outside the rooms, and one side of the hallway would yell, trans rights are under attack, and the other side would yell back, what do we do? We fight back. And they kept using the term, we fight back. And so after I'd finally been barricaded, and, and I was in this room for a couple hours, and they kept saying it, I'm like, why do they just keep saying, we fight back? And we've talked a lot about this stemming from the top in regards to um, you know, Trump and January 6th and, and Tucker Carlson giving the license to people to basically do whatever they want because but we're not talking about this on this side of it because the day before this incident at San Francisco State the Biden administration press secretary had a press release, a press conference where she says word for word our trans community is resilient and they fight back and I find it so ironic they were using the exact same verbiage, we fight back. They kept saying it continuously. And so I wanted to put that on the record because we've talked about it a lot stemming from the top on the other side, but I think it's crucial to understand that that, that goes both ways. Well, Ms. Gaines, thank you for your courage. Thank you for standing up for what you believe in. Any sort of threats or violence or intimidation is despicable. Um, it has no place in our society. And to my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, real courage lies in being able to stand up even when it's not popular and even when you may not agree with it but being able to stand up to a bully and that's what this is this is about a bully in our society for a narrative that some don't agree with and it doesn't matter which side you you stand on but you have stood up to that bully uh, and i applaud you for doing that and the country is watching you and your leadership and we appreciate uh, what you're doing uh, mr chairman thank you for holding this hearing and standing up to a bully. We should all condemn any violence that happens, and I think that that's exactly what this hearing is about, and I yield back. Well done, Mr. Fleur.
earlier, the gentleman yields back. I thank the witnesses for their valuable testimony and the members for their questions. The members of the subcommittee may have some additional questions for the witnesses, and we would ask the witnesses to respond to these in writing if asked. Pursuant to Committee Rule 7D, the hearing record will be open for 10 business days. And with my thanks, the committee is adjourned.